What's up, guys? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 34 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll get to hear from the crew at Papa Select. This is the first time you'll hear from three guests at once. We get to learn a little bit about each Jillian, Tiana, and Boris. They give us some insight into what the vision is for the company and what role working with local farms in the Emerald Triangle plays into it. We also discuss what it takes to scale up as a commercial hash producer and many of the logistical challenges that come with that and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. A big shout out to our community on Patreon for their support and for allowing us to continue making what we hope are valuable conversations regarding cannabis resin. If you'd like to join the community, you can visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn or use the link via our Instagram at the hashish in. A shout out to another big reason we're able to keep the podcast rolling, our sponsors, including our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Again, you can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. They carry everything you need to make rosin, including their high quality rosin bags, which are used by many of the best hash makers in the world, as well as their full mesh wash bags, which are, in my opinion, the best deal in the game. They just released a 55 gallon 220U wash bag. So if you need to step it up from a 44 gallon, they got you and you can save 5% on their already fair prices by using our savings code, the letters THI standing for the hashish in. Again, THI saves you 5% on your entire rosin evolution order. Shout out to Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, providing you the highest grade rosin press on the market, made from the highest quality parts on the market, machined locally, and still assembled and tested one by one in their garage in Portland, Oregon. They're always quality over quantity. So if you're in the market for a rosin press and you want the highest grade rosin press on the market, visit powersplates at powersplates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI to save $75 off their systems. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com. They have all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin. They keep you looking fresh while feeling comfortable. Check out their new hasher line, including their wash crew tee. They have a ton of accessories like their really handy hash gym bags. So if you want to show your love for the resin, visit Six Star Society. That's S-I-X starsociety.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order with them. And last but never least, shout out to our homies and sponsors, Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com. They are your thermal jacketing specialist. They can customize those thermal jackets to fit almost any size vessel, which helps you battle condensation while keeping your water colder for longer. They also carry high quality stainless steel washing vessels in a variety of sizes. So whatever your needs may be as a hash maker, Pele Polare has all the high quality tools to make your workflow more efficient. Visit them on Instagram at Pele underscore Polare or again on their website, pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com. And don't forget to use our savings code, the letters T-H-I to save 5% with Pele Polare. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today I am stoked to be here with Jillian. 
Tiana and Boris of Papa Select, who you can follow on Instagram at Papa Select. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for, for having us. us. Thank yeah. You. yeah, of course. I appreciate you not only coming on, but like hanging out with me this whole week, taking me around to different farms that you guys have been working with. So it's been quite the experience to do all these things with you and then like talk to you for an interview. So I appreciate that. Well, I mean, this has been, I've been listening to you for, for a while and I, t- I got the girls onto it. I make them listen to the Hashishin sometimes <laughs> when we're out on long farm trips. So uh, we've definitely heard your voice. So it's a comforting presence in the car. And we, you know, we like what we're doing out here. We think something that we're doing out here is very unique. Uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity to see, you know, the farms out here. And, and I'm psyched that you got to see the different types of farms from legacy farms to people that are just, you know, newer to the market and everything in between. So I was really psyched about the week. You're a cool cat. Uh, Chris from Canon Kush has been awesome. And Jamie, you've been great too. So thank you to you guys as well. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Candid Kush and to Jamie for helping out with the video work. It's the first kind of video work that we've done on behalf of kind of like the Hashishin. But yeah, it was really cool. Like you said, we saw a broad spectrum of grows and growers and different kind of philosophies. But in the end, they all kind of merge with you guys. So, you know, I've, this feels funny and kind of risque. I've never done a three-person interview. <laughs> but uh, let's kind of, you know, figure out what everyone does at Papa. So let's start with Jillian. Jillian, you do a lot of the actual hash making, hash making overview or overseeing. So tell us a little bit more about your responsibilities. Thank you. Yeah, I am the director of production. So in charge of all of the processing and all of the recipes, everything we've done over the last four years to test and come up with new strains that work for our production needs. And then also finding each individual recipe and how those all are created really just a little differently depending on the strain and even the time of year that it's harvested. So I oversee a team of eight of some of the best hash makers I've ever known. And we do everything hand processing. So we will hand wash 60,000 grams or about 120 pounds of fresh frozen with every wash. And then everything beyond that is... A very delicate process, and everything's done very small batch, very low and slow, and it takes a little extra time to really have that quality craft feel that we try to get out into every gram. And where did your hash-making career begin? The first time I actually washed water hash was in 2005, out in the hills buried under the redwoods in Mendocino County. And at that time... You know, I'd obviously been familiar with hash, but never with making water hash. And somebody gave me a set of bags, and I remember just being really confused. You know, what is this? How am I going to make hash? You want me to take my dried flour and soak it in water? (laughs) (laughs) And um, it took quite a bit of time to kind of research it and find some out because it just wasn't really well known at the time. And so, yeah, it's been... 16 years of my life, and, you know, I've done solventless and I've done solvent processing, but those first years, literally out in the redwoods with a paint mixer and chipping ice by hand and making hash and pressing it, you know, that's where I got my roots started in this this world. And yeah. it wasn't in any, like, facility or anything. This was under the redwood trees in that, you know, out there. Yeah, yeah, and you couldn't drain your water, you couldn't make a mess, so... 
we would run five or six bags in 20 gallon trash cans and every one of those bags you picked up was full of 20 gallons of water you sit there and sift it out by hand and pull it and weigh it and move it back and forth and you couldn't you know you couldn't afford to waste any water ice there so it was a very very physical and then yeah as you're collecting it it's pull out this little redwood needle and <laughs> pull out this little seed pod and <laughs> try it all by, you know, by hand on cardboard or paper. There weren't freeze dryers. There weren't really, nobody used dab rigs. Nobody had those yet. So uh, it was just kind of very basic, very beginnings. And we've gotten a lot of new equipment and a lot of things have changed in the game. But ultimately that process of just running the bags and washing the cannabis is the same as it was back then. Right. Let's talk about the cannabis a little because there's no hash without it. So, Tiana, I've gathered that your gig is to connect with farms and foster those relationships and look for genetics. So tell us a little bit about what you do at Papa. I've just been blessed to be able to come on and work with the people that I get to work with on an everyday basis. And I'm from this community here in Northern California. I've been in Humboldt um, for more than half my life now. And I've done cultivation, you name it. I've been, you know, in different aspects of this industry. But, you know, getting to work with people who are really passionate about growing amazing flower, I I did that for years. And transitioning now, you know, with hash and going the the step further is now working with people who are passionate about resin and trichomes. So it's been an incredible honor to work with some of the best growers that I know we have in the world you know, let alone the United States and people who just really love their craft and, you know, come from all different walks of life. No matter what brought them here, or how they ended up here, you know, every farm has a story, a family, um, you know, just an amazing energy behind it. And, you know, getting to dial it in for hash has just been maybe, you know, like my life's greatest work so far. And, you know, in tandem working with Papa Select and and Jillian and Boris and understanding, you know, what it's going to take to bring the best hash to the market, to the people, and understanding that, you know, all of these strains come from years of breeding and years of research before, you know, strains were really geared towards chunky flour, you know, so it was just volume and like bag appeal versus hash flowers that sometimes don't have the best bag appeal. And it's just, you know, there's just differences in the plants. And so being able to work with people and seeing the breeding catching up to hash production and just growing for flour for resin has been amazing. So every partner we have is pretty committed to that cause and to produce some of the best hash that, you know, we are able to share with the world. And it's not easy and it is so hard, you know, it's, it's rarely glamorous. Like the, I think when you're smoking hash, it's like the more glamorous side of it, getting to see it and see how pretty it is, you know, but so many hands have touched that one gram right? and it's, it's phenomenal. So yeah, I feel very blessed. And my team here is just amazing. Working with Jill and Boris has been an amazing gift for sure. Tell us a little bit about what people like to refer to as Proptober. It's the flood, you know. Are you feeling it? <laughs> yeah, so, I it's mean, the for, first. So, you know, when we're talking about harvesting, one, it's, you know, we, we don't have a lot of easy-to-get-to farms. They're very geographically separated, up mountains, dirt roads. You know, we had to figure out, okay, if there's an amazing farm on this cliffside, how the hell did we freeze cannabis on the farm 
and truck that into town under the compliant laws and do it without ruining the weed. Right. Like, how do you do that? You know, so we've had to figure out, you know, and that's been my, my job is to figure out how to harvest everything in a timely fashion, how to do it the right way to keep the quality there, you know, and how to do that when you have hundreds of farms simultaneously harvesting and you're battling that, and then the weather is changing out here, so you're battling the elements. It's pretty crazy. So Croptober is insane, and I just feel like I'm a wild banshee just <coughs> running around crazy, you know, because it just takes, it's, it's all day. And you to get to two farms in a day, it takes all day, everything else that goes into it. So again, it's been a crazy challenge. Super stressed out during this time of year. You just got to ride through it because everybody gets stressed. So many so much financial, you know, gain is to be had at this year for farms. They've been waiting their whole year to get paid. Right. And so it is stressful for everybody. Yeah. Like you said, it's like the whole year. <clears throat> yeah. And then you have such a small window to make it all happen and make it happen well. And there's a lot of moving parts for sure. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Just and trichomes wait for no one. They don't. And, right? and like, days can make all the difference in the quality of hash. Right. So everything has to be on such strict timelines. And when you're working across multiple counties and, and to try and manage all that and get it all timed just right, because those trichomes don't wait and that quality changes and you're buying out for a full year, it's a stressful time for everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. And certain farms, you know, have multiple harvests. But my favorite harvest, I think that we can agree, is the Croptober of the October harvest out here because of the sun. And how it ripens trichomes in a certain way is very different than uh, the summer harvest, in our opinion, for the stability of hash and just flavor and, and all of those things. So, yeah, as you see a certain strain and it's getting close, you're like, okay, it's getting close. And then maybe the weather shifts just a little bit for a day or two, and it brings that timeline from 10 days down to a day, you know? And then so that happens. It shifts the schedule. And then you have some of those things happening all over the place. Right. And we're, like, moving freezers in and out of cars, like, our reaper truck is off-roading. I mean, it's insane. You know, all for the love of hash. That's really what it just comes <laughs> down to. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Boris, you mentioned that you feel like you have something unique going on out here. What is that unique thing? Um, it's more its more of a spirit than anything else, right? I mean, I think uh, any... I mean, I, I personally think we have the, the best hash maker in jail in, in California and, and one of the best in the world. We'll still have to see, I guess. We have to come up against them. But I think Jillian is amazing. But I think it's, it's hash is more of a culmination of a process, right? Like it's farmers cultivating trichomes and putting their full effort for the whole year to get that out. I love indoor. I love indoor hash. I smoke it as well. But there is something special to being connected to the, a certain type of person that goes out there and grows and, and connects with nature to bring you the products that, that, that you use, right? Um, I'm personally a big fan of... of of things with terps, like anything across the board. You know, I talked about it this week, sake, right? I like nice scotches, nice tequilas. I like nice flavors in my food, right? I'll go uh, to a farmer's market just to get a certain carrot because it's sweeter, right? And that's because I think that the love that goes into that carrot or the love that goes into whatever product I'm buying means something. The passion for the trichomes or the product or what have you means something, right? I don't even like wine, but I really want to like nice wine because it's a similar process, Right. Um, so what I think we had going unique for us is we have a you know tri-county area here that has struggled to make it through legalization. And most 
you know, vertical integration is the easiest way to succeed in, in this market. And for us to be able to make a name for ourselves alongside farms is very different from anyone else, right? They're, these farms, I think you've talked to them, Mac and South Face, right? David Sunrise, I think, said the same things. Even, even Hannah and Emerald Queen said, we don't have the ability to get out there to cross retail, but with a partnership with Papa Select, we do. So it's a true symbiotic relationship. We don't grow. We do make some of the best hash in the world. We can't sell their flour. We're not a flour company, but we know processing because we you know across the board, Pop and Barclay is a solventless processor, right? So we're taking that know-how knowledge and trying to bring it in concert with these farms. I think it's a beautiful symphony that we've created here uh, in Papa Select. And Julian and Tiana have mentioned this, that you guys did have the option, for example, to do single source. No, no, we didn't really have the option to do single source out here. I mean, we kind of did. We could, we could have if we yeah. wanted to go down that path, but I think, you know, all of us have our roots in a traditional market, and that's something that's very near and dear to our hearts. And watching the struggle of the Emerald Triangle through legalization, we were all really scared, too, to kind of lose that heritage yeah. and lose that uh, community, really. And this was a great way to be able to allow these farmers who really are the only reason we have a legal mm -hmm. cannabis industry where these people that were fighting on the lines, putting their lives, their freedom, their families at risk and kept this going for us and kept that torch lit. And it's our way of respecting them and, you know, their craft and let them do what they do best. And we support in any way we can. And from the very first gram we've ever released, we've always credited a farm because we understand, you know, it's not as great as our processes might be in our facilities and our coordinators and purchasing. We're nothing without our farmers. And it's also because we all are in search of those terps and that uniqueness, mm -hmm. being able to take one beautiful genetic that Tiana has found and to have her be able to place that with multiple farmers in different regions. And we tested a few months later and be able to see what perfect combination of the energy of the farmer and their growing practices and their appellation, their terroir, all come together to create just the best expression of that flower. And so we've also been tracking all of our vintages and our harvests, knowing that the papaya from 2019 can taste different than the same cut grown by the same farmer in 2020. Right. And it is all in the search of those terps. And we get to do it alongside supporting a beautiful community and really trying to preserve that heritage of the cannabis industry and not just lose it out to mega groves and monocropping and, you know, the Walmarts of cannabis companies that are, are going to be popping up with money from other industries. And hash has the opportunity to do that. I mean, hash is the truest expression of, of the plant, of new terpenes, of new flavors, right? And to avoid that monocropping, I mean, I think this is the perfect product for, for cannoisseurs to get into, but then more people to get into as the market expands. We already see solventless growing as a percentage of the extracts. Now more edibles are being made with solventless. There's no reason to do industrial-grade extraction when we're consuming cannabis in the way we are. Right. And the fact that, you know, I think the liquor industries came to it as well, but that got too big. I think we have an opportunity with cannabis to really push that craft and that craft side. And I think that's what, yeah, we, we love doing that at Papa Select and, and coming out. I mean, you've met the farmers. I mean, these people are 
individuals. They're they're <laughs> unique people. They're people that <laughs> the, yeah, stories the story is beyond tell. <laughs> but beyond that, they're also the people like quite frankly that saved this plant. And, and from prohibition, they they're the ones that went through the drug raids and the camp raids and the fucking helicopters and all that shit, right? And a lot of them, it's either them, their families, or people that were inspired by them, they're out here growing cannabis. And I feel like we have to support that, right? As an industry, no matter what, we have to continue supporting that. Because if not, then it's then what are we doing? We're just creating another mega industry that is is just another, you know, another piece of the pie that's that's not really helping anyone. And that's why I think it's important that we never did get into cultivation. We we have an amazing team and processes in in, in manufacturing and distribution and you know um, procurement. There's things that we've built out, but you only have so much energy. You know, this is a sacrifice on so many people. Being as much as you love it, but being in these roles, it's a sacrifice. Like this is all we do, what we've done for years. And I thought I worked hard before. This is a, an entirely different beast. And so you can't take on all of it. Very few people can and are successful. And so I think that like, if you're going to use your money to support a community, because it really comes down to dollars for us, you know, not being single source and working with a lot of family farms and, and people who are just bootstrapped, us putting our dollar there to create a product that shows their talents and our talents together is pretty, pretty damn awesome. And I, I can't think of any other work that I've done in my life that's been as important as it's been, you know, in this role of working with Papa Select and supporting these people. It's, yeah, it's been so important and vital to, like, people expanding and, and being able to survive, like, such harsh and crazy conditions with regulations and taxation. It's nuts. So, you know, if we're a stabilizing force for all these different you know, cool pieces of the pie, you know, we're just part of it. I think it's pretty rad. And what do you think is one of the biggest challenges within those that you mentioned for a small farmer to survive? There <laughs> so many. I mean, it comes down to finances so much. You know, the taxation's been crazy for anyone in the industry. Like, there should have been years where there was no taxation for people to get off the ground. You know, the rules in California, to me... You know, um, every county had their different set of stipulations of how people can get licensed. It's it's crazy that some people have taken five, six years to get licensed here when they've been growing forever due to environmental things or other so many requirements that aren't considered in any other industry. You know, you can't have a cannabis farm next to this or, you know, it's got to be a certain many yards from that. But if you had cattle or corn, like none of those things matter. You know, it's cannabis is held to such a different mm -hmm. standard that it's impossible for some people to be able to do that. And so we lost so many of our heritage farms due to the regulations just to get permitted because they couldn't get an ADA parking spot like out on their hill or, you know, there's certain water stipulations. And it's it's sad to see heritage people who have such amazing experiences and knowledge to add to this industry. And they went out of business. You know, they've been doing this for 50, 60 years and they couldn't afford to play the game. Ridiculous. Like yeah. somebody that wouldn't, wouldn't <clears throat> permit them because they couldn't get a semi truck up the dirt road to their property. And they're like, we, we don't need a semi truck. And they're like, well, you may one day. Mm -hmm. And for them right. to deny a permit based on some asinine thing that they think they may need in the future or to not be able to get, you know, a cement truck out there to pave a parking space, you know, and they're not protected the way other 
players in the agricultural industry are by the Right to Farm Act. You know, you cannot complain about the smell of a hog farm. But what they, our farmers have to do in order to mitigate the smell of cannabis or the sight of cannabis or any of it is, is just asinine. And if you can survive that, then, you know, up here there's a one-acre restriction, right? And so they can't go beyond that. They have to squeeze into that area. Other counties, I mean, that's not a requirement of Prop 64. It was promised to be a requirement of it, but it got dropped, as you've heard this week. And so across the state, what we have is megacros being established that can scale, right? They can scale. But the one thing I think that this place has for it, and I think that anyone that does survive this turmoil has, is I think resin is created better up here in full-term sun. And I think there are farmers that are understanding that, that are turning to resin production. And, you know, I've seen a lot of the hash coming out of these mega grows. It's just not there. And I don't know if it's going to get there, but we have a way good, better head start because it's there. It's just about scale. There's just about there's a certain cost of production that they're going to hit. And it's going to make sense for them to just put that through an automatic washer and, and, and do a full spectrum run and put some solventless rosin out there. Right. And I think that the market will flock to that for a bit, right? But what can we do here? As long as we cultivate these relationships with the farms, continue putting quality product out there, and yes, find some product that meets that price level as well. We have to play in this market, uh, but not ever compromise on quality. I think that we have an opportunity for hash to actually lead the way for this area. But if it's but for flour, for any of these small farm brands that want to have their own tincture or edible product. Man, it's a, it's a tough world out there. You know, if, if someone's got 300,000 square feet under glass and steel, I mean, they could throw away the amount that they're, the, the farm here is growing on for their full year. And right. they'd still be fine. Right. And they're funded with probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So even if they're not making money, it doesn't matter. These are family farms that need to make money. Right. They, they can't go break even or less for years. That's just not a possibility for them. So they, that those I think that's scaling. And surviving as the rest of the state scales while they can't um, is, I think, they're the biggest obstacle going forward for these folks. Yeah, okay. because this is not this is not a sprint. This is a marathon to stay mm-hmm. in this business. And so many people that have that money can operate at those losses. And so a lot of these farms, though, are just year to year or paycheck to paycheck. And unfortunately, I think, you know, for a lot, they're not going to be able to hold on to that challenge. It's just, it's aggressive. I mean, and I just, one more thing, some some real talk out there. You know, there's a lot of people, and I know it because I listen to your um, podcast and I, and I I see the chat sometimes. There's so many connoisseurs there and hash connoisseurs. I know I, I still buy from the traditional market, so I'm not saying ditch the traditional market. No, I mean, buy Ever. the best hash out there. I support the traditional <laughs> market, but what I will say is, when you go into the legal market, find out who you're buying from. Now, I'm not just saying just from us. There's great brands out there that are doing it right and that are buying from the right farms. And, and you can find them out, no problem. I'm happy to shout them out if I need to. Timmy Collier does a fucking phenomenal job with that. You know, others do as well. So, um, you know, where your dollars go matters. And sometimes you go for that 40 or $50 gram because you're in the shop. That, that matters. You have to know where those dollars are going. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, when you're buying from a, 100 acre Santa Barbara farm that margin for them you know it, it's it doesn't mean that much it's a drop in the bucket you know but when you are buying from anybody who is you know sourcing in the north part of the state and I mean north north part of the state you know like Mendocino County Humboldt County Trinity County like 
It, it matters. It matters, like, you know, where you put your dollar and, and helping these people get through some of the, you know, the hardest times as we're going to see the next few years. And for us, you know, like if we don't lose these people, if we don't lose their their knowledge, their passion, it's going to be great if that, that weed makes it to the market where more people can have access to it. Like, you know, Boris was saying, there's going to be so much confusion, I think, as all these mega grows are coming online and pumping out product eventually, you know, in the marathon, not in the sprint, people are going to know if you like to smoke, you know what good weed is and you will search that out high and low. And we have some of the best terpenes and some of the best resin, you know, and I would like that story to be, you know, survive. And so, you know, when this is maybe we're, you know, shipping from state to state or, we're, you know, able to, you know, cross our own state border, stuff like that, that these stories carry on and people know exactly like, you know, where these farms came from, what their history is. I would, I would love that. That's my most like positive vision forward. Like if that's a possibility, it'd be pretty cool. And Jillian, do you feel like what you guys are doing is something that would help facilitate that? I do. And I, um, you know, I've been a, a flower smoker for my entire adult life and moving on to finding hash. It is this, there's this cleanliness and this purity to ice water hash that is just unparalleled. And it speaks to our roots, not only of our local cannabis community and industry, but really of, of the cannabis plant historically and all the way back to, to the oldest records of smoking marijuana and where that hash came from. And I do believe it's something that's easy to see the quality. It's a very clean way to consume it and to reap the benefits of that, whether that's you know mental or physical or just pure enjoyment. And so I do think being able to move hash um, across our country and to be able to share that Humboldt heritage uh, with so many people who have heard about it and dreamed of it and to take those genetics and that knowledge and that history, you know, we're not going to be able to ever duplicate the perfect regional, you know, specifications of Northern Emerald Triangle and take that over to the East Coast. Right. But we can take those genetics or hopefully one day we can make it here and bring it to them and be able to share that craft and that history in a way that somebody in New York will never be able to experience quite the same as somebody who's lived up here and been a part of it. And so, yeah, I do really look forward to, to the day when we can share this out with the world beyond just California. Yeah, that's cool. Boris, you mentioned the wellness part. Of Papa and Barkley, how did Papa Select come to be? How did Papa Select come to be? Well, Papa and Barkley started in 2016. We we are a cannabis wellness company. We produced, you know, a very famous uh, topical bomb here in California with a very touching story from our founder and my partner Adam. With his father, he was able to rejuvenate his father and take him off of hospice just using the bomb um, uh, for a case of stenosis. Um, and we really did well on the market for a few things. One, we made amazing products. Two, I think we committed ourselves to whole plant, full spectrum, solventless extractions. And three, we had a belief in the power of the plant. So, you know, our, our mission was always to unlock the power of cannabis to improve people's lives. 
<clears throat> in my mind, all cannabis use is wellness, right? And I think that many of us here also believe that of Papa and Barkley, right? And I think Papa Select came out of, you know, in the background, I am making all of these products like topicals, tinctures, everything for, for the market. And I use them. I have my, the bomb in my car. I use the capsules, CBD capsules every day. But in the back, I was always looking for hash. I mean, in the back, I mean, my whole history is looking for terpenes and looking for hash and wanting to find that best extract. And I realized over time that that is also part of my medical regimen. That is part of my wellness regimen, right? On days that I'm smoking great water hash or my favorite strains, my, my, my arthritis is not acting up. My inflammation is not acting up. I don't have pain, you know, and I think it was kind of like a, a, a trigger in my mind that like, you know, what else can we do up here from the solventless side and expand into the market. And at first we thought Temple Ball, but then I had an experience with um, with, with, with Hash Rosin at, at, a, at a Reggae on the River Festival, but that's another story. But w once I tried it, it was like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. Like I, I was ruined. <laughs> I mean, dabbable water hash and the fact that it tastes and smells just like, like as if I licked the flower, right? Like that, that realization in my mind you know, the full bodied experience of water hash and, and rosin, but I prefer water hash. That speaks wellness to me, right? To be able to also put it into as part of your daily wellness regime. I like teaching people about that. More people that know me and are around me and understand how I interact with cannabis. I think they get, it's less aggressive for them to maybe understand cannabis as a wellness topic, right? Because you see a torch and a tap ring. And I mean, we don't have a video here, but we've got, you know, a thing of alcohol and, and two bangers and a dab. Right? We've got like a thousand dollars worth of equipment to smoke hash here. People would think we're fucking crazy. But the truth is, once you've been through the cannabis life cycle and the product cycle, if you really, if this is your medicine, if this is what floats your boat, if this is what works for you, what gets you through life, and I shouldn't tap, then, um, this is a wellness product, right? And, and you know, some of the most, the best messages we've gotten actually like on the IG and everything are people saying, thank you for releasing this. The only thing that helps with my anxiety or my muscular dystrophy or, or what have you. Like we've gotten these messages as well. That just is not a message that we always talk about, right? Because it's more about, oh, the terps and the flavor and this and that. There's a reason that so many people are attracted to hashish, right? It is so clean and yeah. pure, and we don't know enough about the endocannabinoid no. system to know why certain, you know, forms of ingestion work better for mm -hmm. different people's system, and whether that's edibles or topicals or inhalables or, you know, it all does vary, and, and there are so many people that do reap the maximum benefits from inhalation of the product, from mm -hmm. smoking it, and this is the cleanest way with no chlorophyll and no plant material and Nothing but that perfect trichome the fruit that of the houses all yeah. the cannabinoids and terpenes and every possible, you know, beneficial aspect of the plant in one tiny little gland and nothing else. So it is a wellness product, mm -hmm. you know. And when you're thinking about it and you're looking at a gram or you're looking at some hash, those are all the little tiny heads. Like, that's insane, you know? Like, if you think about a flower growing. The blueberries. Yeah, just like picking <laughs> yes. them off. Like, it's, it's, it just blows my mind. As close as I am to it, it blows my mind till this day. And, you know, that's the cool thing, too, I think, as data and science catch up is there is a way to isolate the exact terpenes that you want as a need state. Like, eventually, there's a trend. If you have 100 different flavors that you're smoking and you have the data behind them, 
you're going to know which ones you like more. Right. And I bet you there's going to be a trend in some of the data and science. If not, cool, but I bet you there's going to be a trend based on effects and what you like and your personal you know, system. And that's what I'm really excited for is to have a Rolodex of strains and like the science behind them. So you can just be like, man, I'm having some anxiety. I think I'm going to, you know, take these terpenes in, in, in this form of hash for myself. I think it's rad. And, you know, just with how the world has been, you know, um, there's just been so much fear and isolation just with everything that's been going on in the world. Like, you can't tell me that this isn't wellness. These dabs with my coffee or tea in the morning saved my life this year. And it just makes so many things like it's such medicine and it speaks to you in different ways. And I think that's something really special about hash and, um, you know, in general, it's just how or what magic it works for you if you allow it to. And figuring out this extraction technique too. I mean, it's very expensive now, obviously can like to dab this and smoke this and everything, but as, as the genetics get there and as the science get there, this is just, this is another input material at the end of the day and if we can bring the cost down to, 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 to an acceptable place this is the best input material for any cannabis product be it a topical product be it an edible product be it a sugary fizzy soda that they want to make right this is actually the best whole plant product that you could actually make into put into that those other products and, and, and downline products so i mean i would prefer all cannabis products be made from solvents right so as we push the envelope here we open up the doors to create more products down the line that maybe aren't just smokable products, but still allow you to experience the terpenes and the, and, and the whole body experience of ice water hash. Finding that concentrate that mm-hmm. fell in line with the rest of the Pop and Barkley wellness products. Yep. And I was like, oh, this is something that, you know, we can create and release that, you know, flows perfectly with, you know, with the ethos and with the mission of unlocking cannabis and just being so clean right. and, and really wellness-minded and still enjoyable for a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, and... Curiously, we were also hold on. We were also tired of buying dabs off market. <laughs> I needed to get some quality stuff. No, Just make our own. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Boris and I are slaves uh, to Jillian's hash process here, and like what she does, it's like <laughs> don't don't piss her off. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's, you know, it's serious at this point. You know, but um, well, we're gonna dive into Jill's practices real soon. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. Um, Boris, even though it is wellness, you found some resistance when trying to create this division. Yeah. Why? Well, I think because not it's wellness for us. This is obvious for us. We understand the everybody sitting at, around this table right now, if I said things like entourage effect, you guys know what I'm talking about. If I talked about terpenes and cannabinoids and minor cannabinoids and major cannabinoids, you all would know what I'm talking about. If I said trichomes and shaking them off the plant, if I go up to someone and say cannabis was 50 or above, there's like 17 things that go off in their brain. None of them are what I just mentioned. Most of them are going to be some part of some from one side. It's going to be, how the fuck do I get away from this guy? He's a drug addict to the other side. It's going to be, Oh, this, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's just into weed. Right. So, can, you know, there's a lot of people interested in, in, in a company like Pop and Barkley. There's a lot of owners and there's a lot of opinions. And, you know, when you look at the market, when you're from within cannabis, you understand all cannabis use is wellness. If you've, you know, you've grown up on, on, on the OGs in the industry, you know that, right? I mean, Todd McCormick is, was one of the OGs that I always reference and he like bang it into your fucking mind, right? 
Lester Greenspoon was one that always spoke about it too, right? Like he gave his son a 13-year-old cannabis. We know these stories. Others don't, right? And others have, even if they're in cannabis, sometimes, you know, I feel like sometimes we're the bridge because we, I think someone like myself, like Jillian, like you, like, like, like Tiana, we've given ourselves to this plant. Like I'm in cannabis for the rest of my life. This is my career. This is my life. This is what I'm doing. And I think other people that are getting into it, they're still scared to make that full leap. Even if they are, you know, nine toes in, one toe is still out. So I think we, 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 we hit a lot of that. The other thing was, you know, marketers like, you know, marketers specifically like things to fall into very easy to manage buckets, right? If you show someone a bomb and it takes away your pain, it's, it, that's one thing. You show someone a tincture. Okay, I've seen tinctures of Whole Foods. Here's a dab that and makes, a torch. Here's a torch and a dab and this is wellness. You got it. You got it. That, that, that's, that's a leap too far. And so what we always say at Poppin' Barclays, we are the first conversation in cannabis. And I think Select is more the last conversation, the final conversation in cannabis. Once you've gotten through all the riffraff, you're going to find yourself to solve and products in, in the highest end, if that's your thing, right? And I, I think there probably was a little competing resistance between, hey, let's build out that middle conversation before we jump to that final one. Um, but from my side, look, I, I, I just have to maybe blame myself and Tiana, like we and Jill, like we just love these tricones and we started winning awards and then people, you know, we, there was still that debate going on. And, and then okay, we, I'll just sit quietly. Yeah, and then we and sit quietly again and then we got, you know, we, we placed an Emerald Cup and then like, okay, let's sit quietly and wait again. And then the next year we blew it out an Emerald Cup and like, we're, it, it's kind of hard. Once you have something in the market, you can't like pull it out. So there's still a debate of how much effort do you put behind it, right? And so it's more of a question of dollars, right? So at the end of the day, if we didn't get the dollars, we still put in the passion and the time and we still got the same results. And so, that was what we were coming up against. I think we're going to come up against that as an industry. So having to have having to do that within our company is one thing. It's just the microcosm of the rest of the world. I mean, we're here in Cali. It's been legal since '96, bro. I'm from Iowa. I know what it's like to convince those guys. I know what it's like to talk to those guys who hate weed, and we're still in for a lot of long and difficult conversations. Um, and so they're going to start within our own companies and within our own groups, and then they're going to expand from there. And I think we take it for granted, the knowledge that we have, yeah. you know, even in, in this small circle right here, or for people who are listening, you know, like if you understand what a trichome is, you are 80% farther down the road than a lot of people. And so when you're also trying to educate a large consumer base that has so many mixed messages and a lot of noise out there, and, and that's in California, you know, one of the most weed savvy states in the United States, you know, the the challenge <laughs> that's on the horizon is massive, you know, and it's, it's, I don't think, you know, we can quite conceptualize it, you know, just cause we're so far down in, into the rabbit hole with it. But, you know, those are the people that you're trying to reach to be explaining, you know, this can change your life and it's going to take been told a while. One thing their whole life, mm-hmm. you know, and even conversations within my own family and trying to convince them, you know, you know, it's, it is necessary for some people, and for some people it's just enjoyable, but it's wrapping their head around the fact that somebody that consumes cannabis is not lazy or not a stoner, or they're not just going to sleep the day away and never get a job, or, you know, it's not going to be a gateway to other drugs or anything like that. There's a lot of bad publicity and misinformation, decades, lifetimes of it, that you have to try and convince somebody otherwise And while 
they may at the surface look at it and kind of laugh and say, oh, reefer madness isn't a thing, but it's been ingrained in them Mm -hmm. that pot smokers, quote unquote, are not the cream of the crop and it's not what you want your friends and family, certainly not your children to be. And and it's it takes years to undo those thoughts that have been ingrained in our society. Yeah, like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a very, like, outward and, like, forward person, and it's just how I live no. my life, like, really expressive. So, you know, that, but coming out, um, being gay and coming out in a community that really just doesn't, you know, support it. I came out really early, and I got out of there as soon as I could, you know, just to live the life that I needed to, to be here in Humboldt County and essentially have to live in the closet again through cannabis because, you know, at any time I could have got rolled and, and, and definitely, you know, suffered the consequences of that. And in the work in these pockets that it's so accepted and it's like what we all do, but it's this, just this like giant secret, you know, for then it to be legal and you know, the battles just are never ending with the either conversation, I guess. You know, it's going to take a long time to have people understand it and see it differently and also get past the trauma that's been ingrained in so many people. Because it has been on both sides of it. Because mm-hmm. our farmers have been ingrained with that trauma mm-hmm. of being hidden and never being open. And we all had the backstory to what our real profession was, you know, <laughs> or to what our, you know, storied profession was. You know, because you landscapers couldn't... were out here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How many, we were all landscapers. I mean, n- never mind bringing video equipment and audio equipment out yeah. to the farms. That right. never happened, But right? so for you to be able to, like, make those relationships with those farmers, Tiana, you know, you they don't understand the people who've been through the trenches how much harder it is for them to open up and to trust and to have, you know, solid business partnerships. And, you know, that's been an art in itself is knowing the community. And because there are traumas on both sides of the line, people in and out of cannabis, which is still hard to imagine with such a beautiful, mm-hmm. innocent little plant. <laughs> yeah. And I think like we have this farmer um, in Mendocino and we, we did these like farmer series videos. And so, you know, going and kind of putting snippets out. And so you guys can ch- check that on the Papa Select uh, Instagram. But we had one of these videos that we had to hold back from our farmer in Mendocino oh, yeah. and like, you know, his story is beautiful and the video came out amazing and it doesn't share a lot of information, but it was like such an anxiety fueled thing for him to be out and for people to hear his voice. Like, even if we edited his face out, you know, he's very, very private. He served time for this plant as well. And as soon as he got out, he was back here growing it. The trauma is deep, you know, and uh, eventually, you know, maybe when we're a lot, a lot older, we can look back on it and, and, you know, hopefully it's better. But yeah, this is going to be years, I think, before we're able to really deconstruct the myths and give cannabis to people in a way that, you know, they feel safe. Because to me, it's a right. This is a plant that is grown on this planet. It's a right. And that right has been stripped away from so many people through either fear, misinformation, stigma, access, safe access, which again, like wellness, like even smoking to me, it's wellness. Like you have a safe place to get hash and flour. That's awesome. You know, that's, that's the whole goal. But I can only imagine there's just some pockets, you know, so, so far away and just that don't have that access or any of that culture or understanding and how much hash and cannabis has helped me in my life. 
in my family's life. You know, I just want to be able to give that gift to anybody and everybody, but the challenge is great. So. Yeah. Boris, you guys are almost curating or highlighting the history of Northern California, cannabis farms and culture, but the company's originally from Southern California. Well, actually, I mean, quite frankly, the company was founded in Massachusetts in a kitchen because okay. uh, that's where Adam made his first batch of bomb. We came to California, and, and the full story is Adam, who was from Massachusetts, came here uh, with no knowledge on cannabis, only after having, I mean, he's been, to be clear, Adam is a pothead. He and I smoke together. He loves fucking weed. He's not one of these guys that doesn't smoke weed. But, like, you know, he's not in the culture that way, right? And so he came out and he met our third partner. There's three partners that started the company, uh, and that's Guy. Uh, and Guy had a, I mean, Guy Rocor is just, like, he's he's a force to be reckoned with, and, and he is just... Um, a shining light in the cannabis industry, to be completely honest. I think we're lucky to have him as an industry. But Kiro Kaur was, was our original partner. He was from L.A., right? So, for you know, for him, he was our chief products officer, our head formulator. It was easier for him to be there. So we started out of a house, his old fucking trap house, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where to teach us the full life cycle of cannabis, we were growing, trimming, processing, blasting sometimes even though we weren't supposed to and we had a closed loop on the site and we had a rosin we had all the things it was great and you um, made ball and we made ball I mean it was phenomenal but um, Adam also his his biggest connection to California was actually his cousin up here in Eureka who used to serve on the city council actually his cousin-in-law but his cousin married a, a man that's from Eureka um, helped us get set up here and, and and Adam had been coming here for years so he was very familiar with the area he's a, he's a nature driven person so he likes going hiking and going out in the woods and stuff so the original plan was always like when he introduced me to the idea of building a brand in California it was always you know our office will be in LA but we're going to always manufacture in Eureka because we have to be close to this like he always tell me before I came here he's like dude it's like the redwoods and weed growing together it's like magical it's like the coolest <laughs> thing in the world uh, and when I came here I saw it so you know, we launched in 2016. We uh, took the lease for the place over here. I joined the company in May. We took that lease in no. We got the building in November. Um, we took and, and it was burnt down when we got it. By the way, on the Fourth Street <laughs> building, it was absolutely burnt down with an open fucking roof and everything. But we got that in November. We were the first or second licensed company in the city of Eureka and in the, in the county of Humboldt. And by the next summer, we were the first fully operational manufacturing facility. So, yeah, we did operate out of L.A. and we produced every single one of our wellness products out of that little fucking kitchen. And I delivered it all myself, actually, with the help of Mike Heinstein, our director of uh, distribution. And um, we as soon as this facility was ready up here in June of 17, we moved all manufacturing. It took like a week to switch it. And then our patches kept getting made down in L.A. for about two months after that. Okay. But then we switched completely. And from June 17 until now, everything has been manufactured, produced solely out of Humboldt County. Uh, all of our flour that comes into the wellness line is all from Humboldt County. But then, you know, we, we're searching for Terps. So we'll go anywhere. Mostly Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendo. But shit, Terps are Terps. We'd like to support Northern California and small family farms that are doing it right, regenerative farming practices. We have our list of requirements. Most of them do not say you can't be a mega grow, but we got to see a mega grow that really understands trichomes and believes in hash and believes in the cannabis culture and community before we actually go down that road, which I don't think will happen, but we'll see. Got plenty of good weed with yeah. these farms here. Yeah. So, you know, and the, the requirements 
it's a lifestyle. It's not just living it for a job. You know, it's like it's this is your life. So I think that we have a great pool of people here and hopefully we can continue to support them doing what they they love to do for sure. I was thinking, too, about you talking about the bombs. Like, let's just be clear. All this, even if the products weren't made here at the time. All that weed was from All here. the weed was from here, to be clear. I mean, we were making hot runs. You know, what was funny early on in the company was that neither myself, Adam, or Guy felt comfortable making anybody do anything we hadn't done. And so a hot run was like the gnarliest thing you could do. I'm not going to say there was interstate runs of hemp at the time that were illegal, but maybe there were at the time. But more importantly, we were running up in the state. Like every time we were getting all our product from up here and running it back down south. Once we start producing a little bit up here, we could either infuse it up here or extract the key for make the rosin up here, but still send down for blending down south because all the blending stuff was down there. That was a wild, wild run for a minute there until we turned on the manufacturing facility here. Um, and yeah, I was, I did probably 10 or 15 hot runs that year. So did Adam, so did Guy. And then we started feeling comfortable asking others to do it. Actually, others started coming up to us and being like, okay, I guys, we got it. We understand. <laughs> yeah. You guys to stop doing it. We'll take it from here. So. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, I feel like this could be a good time for a smoke break. You guys done? I'm done. So for smoke down. Right, Let's get cool. into it. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com or on Instagram at Powers Plates. They were the first ones to bring anodized platens to the market because since the very beginning, Powers Plates main priority has been making the highest grade equipment that they can, which is something that I really personally respect because I feel like if you're going to do something, you should do it the best that you can. And that's exactly what these guys have done, which is why I'm stoked to be working with them. Rosin presses aren't all that different in function, but they do differ in quality because it's the parts inside your press that really make the difference. Originally, Powers Plates was a side project to make high-grade rosin presses for the local homies. And although Powers Plates has grown and they've made their high-grade rosin presses more readily available to you, nothing has changed in the quality. They're still selling you the presses that they would sell their homies. They're still being machined locally in Portland, Oregon. They're still being assembled and tested one by one in Scott's garage. And more importantly, they're still all about quality. So you can rest assured that when you get a set of Powers Plates, all the components that make up your rosin press are of the highest quality possible. Yes, they're a little more than some of the other systems out there, but as with everything in life, you typically get what you pay for. They've also just dropped their prices $100 on their rosin kits, and you can use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, standing for the Hashish Inn, to save an additional $75. So together, that's $175 off the highest grade rosin press on the market, which comes in a nifty Pelican case that serves as your PID controller. So don't skimp on yourself or your craft and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com. And don't forget to use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I to save $75. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So before meeting you guys, I kind of had the sensation that you guys were like a female forward squad on Papa Select. Always. And upon being there, I saw it's a pretty good split, which is not a common thing. What's the driving force behind that, Jillian? There was no driving force behind it. I mean, it wasn't something that, 
you know, I had this idea that I'm going to have a team that's split or I'm going to have a team that's very female forward. But I think being open to that is what's allowed so many amazing female hash makers and, and partners. And it's everything from our VP of production and our VP of sourcing to my production manager, our quality control and their management and, and the hash makers on the team are just some of the most powerful women I've ever met. And to me, I never really considered it any other way, but talking to uh, some of the women on my team that had been working with other cannabis companies that happened to have a hash team as well. And when they voiced an interest in joining and washing and, and running rosin with them, they were kind of repeatedly given the answer of, oh, well, you know, it's, it's really tough work and it's, it's really labor intensive. There's a lot of heavy lifting, like, you know, maybe, but I, I just don't think that's right for you. And a couple days later, the guy sitting next to her asked the same question and the response is 180 and it's, yeah, come on in, grab a paddle, let's go. And it just blows my mind away that we, you know, that people can still have those preconceived notions and, you know, my women get in there and they throw around stacks of totes and they move totes full of 80 pounds of ice by themselves and they row all day in the 30 degree weather and they're funny and they're smart and I really feel blessed to have them to have such a balanced team. They just work so hard and I have some of the greatest, you know, guys on my team too that are just really detailed, but I think just opening being open to that possibility always and really finding the best candidate because in order to be a successful hash maker, you really have to have a love for it. I think a little touch of crazy helps because you spend so much time in 20, 30 degree weather and it's freezing cold and it's, you know, a very physical job. So you got to temper that little craziness, you know, helps, helps people work through it. But they just have such a love and a passion for it. And that really drives through. And that's, those are the hash makers I looked for because it's not easy and it's not quick. And when you do a lot of really small batches in order to have that craft feel, it's just painstaking detailed work on top of it. Um, and yeah, just being open to somebody that has that passion I've just been lucky enough to find that, you know, a lot of really strong women hash makers come across my board and I'm happy to hire them and, and have them part of the team. But yeah. I, I didn't look at it and go, well, I've got a team of eight coming. I need four women. Right. No. Yeah, you told me, I think, uh, at a different point that we had a conversation. You're just looking for the more qualified person oh, for the job. Always. Whether always, that's yeah, a female or not. And I know from years of doing it myself, you know, there's... It's a physical job, but there's nothing that, you know, a man can do that a woman can't. And if she's got the, the love and the drive, she'll sit in there and row every minute of the day alongside the men and she'll pick up the ice totes and move them. And, you know, it is all about who's qualified on many different aspects because you're looking for somebody with brute strength and stamina for the wash, and then somebody that can be very, very detailed and delicate, gramming out water hash sitting in a 25-degree room. We're making a perfect little ball of a live rosin patty and putting it in a jar. So 
It is. Love has to be the basis of it. And then you can be taught the other skills if you're open to it. But it's a very interesting team and a very interesting set of skills you have to have in order to do it. Because we do have the team processes, everything through together, start to end. I don't have a washing team and a rosin team and a packaging team. And I want my team to be the most well-rounded hash makers they can be. And that includes following those same trichomes from the very beginning all the way to the last, you know, gram being put into a box. And they get to see why, when I'm so specific with the little details of how we handle and lay our wet hash into trays to the exact gram amount and recipe for pressing rosin and keeping everything very separated. And they get to see why those details matter because they get to follow that product through every step of the way. And they understand why these little things in the wash are so important to the final product. And so I do think it just makes for well-rounded. Everybody knows how to do everything. Right, yeah, you mentioned that to me. And I mean, I agree. I think that if you know little parts of all the other facets, of, you know, what you're doing, then that can only help. Yeah. I've talked to other teams and all that, you know, like, oh, no, this is my <coughs> wash team. They don't do anything else. Well, just like with our terpenes, variety is a spice of life. But, you know, you want to always be challenged and you want something new coming across your plate every day. And, and yeah, who wants, you know, who wants to wash all this beautiful hash and never get to see the rosin it makes right. or the grams it makes? So It's such a pleasure to be part of the whole process, right? And if you're going to be in that room, like, I don't think there's any other way but to be involved in every part of the process, right? I don't know. I love it. It seems the only natural way to do it, but I've, I've found that we're more the oddity than the norm in that manner and that most, you know, most other companies have it set differently. You know, and you, you perfect your rosin pressing and you sit and you press rosin all day, every day. Well, what's different about our team is I'll come in and as we're washing, they're going to tell me how something in the wash is going to affect the press later on. Or if I'm pressing, they're going to say, yeah, we kind of thought that was going to be the case while we were washing, you know, this terp or that terp or whatever. I, I haven't seen that from any other hash professionals that I've talked about. There are people that just wash or whatever. I mean, we have very well-rounded crew. Right. Uh, and they're also just passionate individuals that love, <laughs> well, I love think hash. I think that's also the goal, too, is when you're working with people. Like, we, we've all had to deal with so many crazy regulations and changes and packaging this. You name it, you know, harvesting, how to harvest if we have people who work with us in our teams, if they ever choose to leave or go somewhere else, I want them to add value to those places that they're going. And I want them to also feel confident that they've learned some really cool things with us and that they can impart that wisdom onto other teams and other people. So I think that's just a testament, Jill, to how you work with your team and how you guys, you know, communicate because I see everyone growing every day, like, you know, professionally. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch because I've worked in some stagnant places and that's not the case for anybody on those teams for decades, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's another blessing, you know, in this fast paced business is to be learning so much. And the fact that we have so many badass ladies, it's freaking awesome. You know, we have badass dudes too, but I have never worked with so many amazing, just badass women that I have with Papa Select and Papa and Berkeley. Just true, awesome people. And if I can say something as the man in the room so I can actually blow some smoke up the ladies' skirts here. <laughs> like, there is, and I don't know if it's a man-female thing, maybe it's just the females around our team. There is an attention to detail 
that I found not just, I mean, I have found intention. I mean, with you, Jill, for example, quite specifically, I mean, the quality that comes out with what you make, I worked with some male counterparts in your position and they don't have that attention to detail, right? I don't know if that's a male or female thing. Maybe it's just the Jillian Crawl thing. But I do find that there is a little bit of an extra OCD element with women. And I can, I know, I don't know if I'm wrong in saying yeah. that in the modern world in 2021, but I do, that's no, my no. truth right now. I think now. Your, all your teammates that are, you know, support and, and work with you are all badass women boarders. So, you know. You, There's a reason that that's, a, that's the case. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and on the team, they know, you know, the motto is, you know, nothing is ever good enough. Hmm. And nothing, you know, we never stop trying to tweak or learn or improve, you know, and just last week, actually, the team hit a, a yield record on a wash that they'd never hit with, with material we'd been processing for a year because they're always striving to get better and we never accept for anything being good enough. And every time Tiana brings us a new genetic and it just blows everything out of the water, well, then we need to have five of them. We need to have 10 of them. And every time a hash comes out, just pristine, the team wants to emulate that and they take such pride in their work and that's really what it comes down to because they're never happy with good enough either. And, you know, if anything, instilling that, I think, has been, you know, one of the greatest things because there's always room for improvement and we are lucky enough to work with so many different genetics in being in the sun-grown market there's so many variables from early harvest to depths to full sun from one year to the other that I think, too, the hash makers on my team have, have been blessed, you know, as we talk about well-rounded, um, you know, patrons of their art. They've seen everything from incredibly high quality and unstable to something that was beautiful and yielded, but the terpenes and the highs weren't that good and something that can grease all up along the sides of the bags or something that washes beautifully and is stable but slips out on every other press. And, you know, they've gotten the chance to work with so many different products too. And again, from start to finish, that I do believe they must be some of the most experienced hash makers, you know, because there is no monotony in their day either and in their genetics and in their products they get to work. And so we're always learning and improving, and they're just blowing me away that, you know, they've just taken it to heart. And pivoting, man. (laughs) And pivoting is the word of our... You know, something (laughs) changes, and it's like a strategy change or something, you know. The three of us will talk about something, and it's like, oh, well, we need to fix this immediately. And then it's like pivot 100%, like go into that, fix that, or do that, or produce that, or release that. It's insane. And our team's like... Daily on the harvest, you know, I put out an email every night to the team. This is what, what time we're meeting. This is what we're doing. These are the processes and the assignments of the day. And I can put that out at 11 o'clock at night and I can roll into the lab at 6.30 in the morning and be like, all right, guys, well, things have changed since then. Right. <laughs> got an early morning phone call from this farmer and things are done early and procurement's going to be in with a test wash by 9.30 and we're going to wash that. So in the meantime, we're going to press this and we have to have an answer by, you know, midday tomorrow on whether we're going to go for this harvest. It's crazy. Yeah. It is nuts. Like, and if you think about, you know, there's people who have their own cultivation space or a single source have, you know, more freedom to pheno hunt 
and and things like that. So it's been really aggressive and, and strategic and what strains we're releasing, like what strains we're phenol hunting with farms. But I mean, for us to be, you know, the complete opposite of single source and doing that with so many unique personalities and then things just happening and Jill washing maybe 50 test washes, 60 test washes. And those are things that we've already identified. That's not counting the 10 other things in the field that I was like, yeah, no, I don't think this is going to work. Or, you know, it's, it's insane how every year we're going through those flavors and, you know, we're onboarding so many new strains and so many new cultivars that then her team's going to have to pivot and and take care of just so we can give people timely responses. It's pretty insane. Cause again, it goes back to trichomes. You only have a certain window to harvest them. And if you're too late and you like the sample, but you're too late to harvest, then and like your yields aren't there, the quality's not there. You, you know, you, it's very sensitive. So And it had been just, a while, but there's been days in years past when we were an even smaller team where we rolled in in the morning and it's like, all right, guys, these trichomes are done. We don't have a harvest team set up. Get your cars, get your gloves, get your scissors. We're going to go harvest this. And the team gets to go <laughs> and harvest the fresh frozen yeah. and then wash it and then press it and then you know batter it and then gram it and then box it and sticker it and you know do it all and (laughs) there was definitely a time when we had to shut down all of production between papa select and papa and barkley when we're at our burned out building and literally caravan all our cars out and it was still early in the industry being legal at that point so people were walkie talking and radio like farms were radioing to other farms oh shit there's a convoy coming up the hill like You know, and it was like, no, we're here. It's legal labor. We're not here to roll, you guys. Like, we promise, you know, like, talk about trauma, you know. So, um, you have to be able to wear many hats in this area and in this company. And yeah, but it makes a beautiful thing of, of people and their experience and their knowledge and their love of it. Yeah. I didn't know Boris or Jillian before this. And I can say that these two people have changed my life forever. Very true. And, that I'll never be the same from them, you know? And I think, like, regardless of just even the hash, like, what this mission has been together, it's like an opportunity of a lifetime. It's so rare. I think it's really rare that you get to go through such an amazing experience with people doing something you love so much. And so regardless of how crazy it's been or some of the big disappointments, you know, that you can experience in a new business and industry, like, it's been so fucking rad, you know? Um, it's the love of the, the plant and your team members, you know, and your community that really carry you through those hard times because there's been a lot of them. And we are and still a really small rural town and everything from repeated power outages to not being able to get equipment delivered, certainly not being able to get somebody to come out and service it, you know, and all of those struggles on top of it, of being a startup company and a startup industry. Um, if you don't love and respect the people along your side, you know, we never would have gotten this far. Yeah. yeah. One thing I keep hearing is like, you know, your rep is everything in these types of areas and that's what people value. So mm-hmm. what you stand for, yeah. When people know who you are before they know where you're coming from. So Boris, take us back to 2016, you said, when you were first assembling the team. So Tiana said she didn't know you before. You seem to be kind of the orchestrator putting this together. Tell me about how that developed. How I met Tiana or how the whole select thing developed? Because that was a whole separate story. I did not, <laughs> I didn't even have the budget to hire Tiana. 
Um, I had a budget to hire like uh, a procurement director and, and Tiana applied for the position. But we needed someone to like buy boxes and jars and stuff, right? Like I was still coming out here every few weeks and, 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 and establishing our sourcing relationships. And we were still growing at the time, so I was still able to go back and forth and do that. But uh, yeah, the minute Tiana walked into the... Actually, what happened was we had a friend helping us, helping the company at the time. We've had a lot of really amazing um, symbiotic relationships as we grew this company and just great friends that have helped us. And one of them was Joy. She was helping us, you know, just manage recruiting when we're getting new people. She would like, you know, vet them and look at the resumes and do things like that. And she called me. She's like, Boris, like, I know you don't have approval for two people. She's like, but think you're going to want to meet this one. I'm like, well, I trust you, Joy. If you know, I'll meet her, but I probably can't hire her. So, you know, don't promise the lady anything. And in walks Tiana and like I told her, like, what we wanted to do, we wanted to work with small farms. I'm tired of working with distributors. I want to have a direct relationship with the farms. And I want to source directly from as many of them as possible for Bob and Barkley. And then I want to grow from there. And I think I told you at the time, like, we're interested in hash. Mm-hmm. We're like, like, we're going to have to start sourcing for that going forward, too. That was like a secondary thing. But really, the number one thing was, was relief sourcing and Pop and Barkley sourcing at the time. Um, yeah, as soon as I met her, I was just like, I mean, your connections, I mean, her her, her, her personality or her, just her aura uh, in general, but also obviously, her, you know, her reputation out here in the hills. There's nobody that you can run across in this tri-county area that hasn't heard of Tiana. <laughs> Good or bad. Good or <laughs> bad. Worse. Um, so we were, you know, it was just an obvious choice at the time. You know, it was unsustainable for me to create the kind of relationships we really wanted to just coming up here every three to four weeks. And, you know, she was ready to go. So I begged and pleaded and my, my partners and we all agreed uh, to bring her on. And I think we never looked back after that. Thank uh, God, because the cannabis I had to wash for three months before that was... Was horrible. Yeah, it was rough. Uh, it was sad. I'm sorry, guys. Look, we had never sourced for solvents before, right? And like... We had had a, um, a, young, a young man, Brady, that helped us understand the process of looking for trichomes and everything from, uh, I have to shout him out, from Select Solvents. He helped us start at the beginning, at least taught us about Fresh Frozen, but I would really say Jillian here perfected everything that we ever did since then. And, um, you know, we knew what we were looking for. We knew how to look for it. But, you know, once Tiana, like, understood what we were looking for for the grit from the trichome and the and the tackiness and you know the cover of the trichome heads and the sign all this and once i put it in her lap it, it was just off to the races right the first year was a lot of test washing a lot of finding great strains winning with those strains losing those phenos right and just like the farm didn't have it or well, we lost the harvesting like, we're getting just, farms you know, to harvest getting people nobody knew harvest. how to harvest right yeah for, for what we do, you yeah. know, it's a very different process than for a hydrocarbon. You know, there's a lot of attention to detail. So how it was cultivated. Every, a lot of people like to use sulfur back in the day because it kills broad mites mm-hmm. and it's a great fungicide and it's a natural. But you cannot extract with sulfur because it'll ruin everything and it tastes like rotten eggs. So there's just learning Which curves. you can't tell until <clears throat> it's been washed or most often pressed. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, you know, we were still r and all these things. We couldn't get enough to get out. So what we started doing was, I mean, Tiana just put it on her shoulders to go out there and source whatever we could. And as we created fire batches, because we weren't in market yet, we didn't have a critical mass of strains we could release. The only thing we could think of doing is was at least enter them into all the competitions because we'll know by the end of the year, you know, we'll at least have enough to release into the market. And that's kind of where it started. I mean, entering high times and getting third place there, ending Chalice and, and winning there. And finally that year, entering Emerald Cup and getting third place with that garlic cookies that we just hit 7.4% on. Um, 
that was kind of a, a turning point for us, right? We didn't get the financial support that we had talked about before, but we definitely were getting market support and, and definitely internal, like, excitement within the company with what we were doing, right? Or just even we haven't, we you know, we spent no marketing budget at all up until this last year with our farmer video series. And so in 2018, it was me, <clears throat> Jill, and Broers working in this little tiny corner of the Emerald Cup. Oh my God, we, we hustled. shared, you know, right by the door. We shared with all these other brands. We got this little tiny, you know, cubby and we're freezing balls out there. It was so fucking those rainy, were our yeah. first sales. And that? Those were our first sales. We made $25,000 of sales that weekend. Three Pop of us just three working. Of us. Like, yeah. just, I mean, sun up till sundown and we were freezing and cold but we couldn't be fucking happier because we had no marketing and we had sold so much product and people who bought product were coming back and buying more. Uh, the best part was all the hash people. Like, yeah. um, you know, we got so much love from the 710 folks and we got love from like the field folks at the time had rosin yeah. out there and like everyone was coming to buy hash from us and like that really, that was a turning point for us. We're like, okay, like, there's hey, something we got here. something. Yeah, we got something here. We're doing something right. Uh, and then we just kept perfecting that process throughout the next year. And really, Emerald Cup was the big thing for us. We got into the market, but like sales team didn't really know how to sell. So that's where I was really helping them get out there, establish relationships with retailers, get them to get used to the fact that, hey, P&B has this, this solventless line. And everything that year was just getting ready for harvest season to find some winners for, for Emerald Cup, right? To, to go into Emerald Cup and really do something. And that's where Tiana, again, she cultivated that relationship with Eric at, at Humble Kind. And, I mean, you're better to speak to that. But we, we just did such a great job with him and Hannah um, that year, that next year. Yeah, that's what I can say about Hat. You know, again, like, say you're a farmer and you've been growing for flour your whole life. And then someone comes to you and is like, oh, let's freeze this. You know, it. It, it's really hard to make those things click into place. I was right trying to make the economic argument. I'm like, guys, you're going to not lose the opportunity cost of the two weeks of, of, of secure, and then you're not going to have to pay the trimmers. You're not going to have to sit on it. And back then, farmers were like, fuck this, fuck <laughs> that. Like, you, fuck you, you know? <laughs> like, and so uh, understanding that and, you know, um, I mean – volume say with like emerald queen farms like the first time we worked with them maybe it was like half a hoop house or a whole hoop house at that point which is about 100 you know 100 feet um so it's like a thousand square feet and you know now we take from her alone like seven to eight of those hoop houses we've scaled with all of our farms and it, it's it's not easy all the time there have been some hard losses you know freezers go out maybe while they're sitting on the farm waiting for us to come pick them up you know, that's a $100,000 loss. Mm -hmm. See, there's things like that that we've all encountered together. But through these years, we have built a, a system of harvesting and protocols. And shout out to, you know, Jamie Dark and helping us with temporary staffing and, and getting that going over the past few years. Like, she's been pivotal in that. And shout out to our farms who have been in the trenches with me in the mm -hmm. mud and in the rain and in the freezing fucking cold, you know, figuring out chest freezers. And figuring out how to make things cold and frozen and, and hard to reach places and how to get that product into, you know, uh, the facility and into Jillian and her team's hands. So, you know, and Eric, uh, Eric from Humboldt Kind, like he, he's a special creature in the sense of he goes all in, you know, if, yeah. if I mean, just like all fucking in full bore. Let's go. He was one of the first ones I understood. He's like. Uh, like a light the went off in his head on the hash side, yeah. 2018, creme brulee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can do this. Yeah. And when I remember, like, walking up into the farm, and he was, like, helping trim and stuff. And he turned and looked at me, and the look he gave me was, like, such disdain. Like, here's another, like, 
distro or something, you know, like he's just so skeptical of people and, and, and other like workmates, like he still talks about it, you know, he's, he's fucking hilarious that way. But, um, yeah, he was so skeptical and us talking, you know, and figuring it out and we got our first harvest in and it did really well. And then he was like, well, how can we do this more? That's when, you know, at the end of 2018 strains and hunting, were like, we need to do more of this. COVID, you know, I may or may not have had had a nursery at my house popping hundreds of seeds, you know, theoretically. Maybe. If they, it might have existed. It might have in might some have. dream. Might not have. Yeah, you never have. know, you know, but if one was doing that to pheno hunt and find all these strains that you can then just like, oh, okay, well, we know this is going to work. We know that's going to work. And like, you know. Those specific phenos are so fucking important. I, I can't. Like even emphasize that enough because like we were talking about mega grows, they're gonna they're gonna find a papaya, right? Or they're gonna find a great creamsicle or whatever the hell it is, right? That they're looking for that's gonna mimic what we love in the hash market. But it's like really the ones that know keeping the real genetics close. I mean, you know, shout out to the single source providers that are doing that because that's that's where they're coming from, right? Same I think that's work. a big part of our future too. Is that you, we have to preserve those and as we find the hitters as we find the unique strains the turf profiles and everything it's on us to preserve that and keep it because only that will continue to create which is why know, yeah, you track the breeders yeah. the genetics the breeders even the cut mm-hmm. because Where those phenotypes from. change so much and that is why you'll see a strain and then number 11 on the back end of it because they popped 20 seeds and that was number 11 and you know, number 11 is vastly different than number nine or number four right. and, and tracking all of those. And that's where the real magic happens behind the genetics is finding one that fulfills all of those exact traits you're looking for. You know, and it's not just yield. It is the quality and it is the terpenes and it is the uniqueness of it. And and that's where I think like going back to like what some of the work that we feel that we're doing is special and, and unique and, and also just paying, you know, um, our respects to some of the breeders who have been in this for a long time. Symbiotic Genetics is an amazing, you know, um, duo that has been breeding and has some of the, one of the best names on the traditional and on the non-traditional market, you know. So I think that us working together with them, um, we've decided to, you know, create an exclusive partnership where we have some of their genetics run through our farms and we get to collab with that. And just in my, you know, years in this, I mean, I've been such a fan of them for so long, like so fucking long. And to be in my professional career and be able to, you know, work with them and, and get genetics from them and put that in a place where we feel that they're going to express the best and give that to, you know, customers. How fucking rad is that? You know, I'm just so stoked. And, and, Oh, yeah, I have the breeder's favorite cut of, of a genetic they created. Um, and to really track those genetics and do those honor because it's been a practice for far too long in the industry of just changing the name and then not being able to track that lineage and that parentage and, and where it came from. And that does a disservice for those who are tracking it for medical and wellness needs and what may be, you know, a very specific form that works for them and you know for so long it was oh well you really want blue dream I this just happens to be blue dream and and people change names and (laughs) even with as overregulated as we are it is still a perfectly legal aspect of our industry that 
the name, any strain name can be changed all the way up to distribution. And that is something that we have never done, nor will we ever do. And, you know, everybody knows cannabis growers and breeders can get creative. And if you're, you know, not a fan of that name, then then we don't process it. You know? I can't tell you the calls I fielded when we released their orangutan titties. From exotic genetics. <laughs> but we don't right? change the name. That we is, don't change the name. that's what they We did change it to the OTs. I haven't released season. it since, so... <laughs> We'll discuss that. No, just kidding. Yeah, you know. But it well, is just being true to true yeah. to that and true to the science of it and the breeders that created it, you know, and their naming convention and, and what it does for the end consumer as well. Well, we wanted to release titty sprinkles too, but, you know, I guess we'll let that wait a bit. <laughs> What's the yield? <laughs> right? What's the term? Where are the fucking all we terms? Do is release it and give some proceeds to breast cancer research. <laughs> who can say no to that? I mean, who can who cannot support Can't that? No we just got to get them growing. Yeah. So you know, I mean, <laughs> it, the genetics is a rabbit hole for me, and I'm a, I have an obsessive compulsive personality. You know, it's just one of those like high functioning, high energy people, and so for me, yeah, like I will spin months trying to get a certain pheno or a strain and I'll find a way and when I get that and then I say it it's like oh on to the next five you know it's it's kind of maddening. Well, it's like, oh, that's not that's not all I hoped it to be well okay you know try again uh, but still it's like <laughs> yeah some of them but there's like, no letdown even once you try you're like I'm so excited that's to go how on I the feel. Next one. I'm gonna keep smoking that I one I still accomplished it I got it done yeah. when they said it couldn't be and I have a really unique sense of smell it's kind of a blessing and a curse but when it comes to hash it's pretty awesome because there's just so many layers to it and then just trying to find something else for people to enjoy and that's one of my favorite things is going to a farm and being like what is this you know, and seeing the flowers and the structure of the heads and just thinking like, hmm, I wonder who's going to like this. Right. You know, there's some there's some really cool ones that are about to be harvested right now. And I'm stoked for them. You know, they're beautiful plants and some are gassy, some are fruity. But, um, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Plus, then we have um, the uh, five strains from Symbiotic Genetics that we'll be releasing as well. And Humboldt Kind, Eric from Humboldt Kind is growing those. So He's are, always down for the cause. And for yeah, the, we checked out some challenge. of the Amarillo, I think. Amarillo. Peel out. Kimchi. The kimchi is fucking super special. I mean, they're all special, but that one's super special because you don't get a lot of lemon finos like in hash. Right. And this one came from, uh, and, 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 you know, all these people are connected. So um, Straight Organics had like a bag of uh, lemon tree, and so it's called the Straight lemonade that's yeah. what this one is called and so you know the guys with symbiotics decided to take that and you know use that mail across different lineages and what came out of it is phenomenal amazing hash amazing different profiles and flavors and a lot of stability so yeah the amarella is special we have uh the number nine and then number 11 these are the breeders cuts and their personal choice we have peel out number one and two which is a specific vino of motor breath times banana punch. And they're two very distinct flavors. Like one of them screams pineapple, which is phenomenal. Nice. Like amazing. And then, yes, the kimchi, which is uh, the straight uh, lemonade vino uh, uh, um, bread with kombucha. And all of those are going to be so special. So 
I can't wait for those to be harvested. I'm super excited, and I, I know can't our wait teams, to wash them. <laughs> our teams are chopping at the bit to process those and to get them in, and so we're all pretty excited. Yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about processing a little. Jill, let's work our way backwards from the garlic cookies that hit 7.6 recently. It sounds like it's something that you've washed before, but recently it's hit the highest yield. So what's going on? Um, and that just comes down to really the the team, you know, even though some of them have been with me less than a year, what they've learned and what they're continuing to learn, you know, it doesn't take that long to learn and understand the process of washing hash. But like any craft or any art, you know, with each time you do it, you get just a little more finesse and you learn how, especially as they get to work repeatedly with the same product, it has a value to it of learning how to just get every last drop, literally. And while they can, you know, great get a great education by working with many different strains and many different styles, being able to take a staple like garlic cookies from Hannah at Emerald Queen, which was a phenomenal year in 2020. And so we purchased a large amount of that. And so we're still processing that um, up until this year. And they've had so many opportunities to just work with a very stable, um, very consistent product. And then they get to really refine that process specifically for that 2020 garlic cookies from Hannah. And it just comes down to them being able to look at the wash water and look at the soak times and be able to read the fresh frozen and know how to just, yeah, just tweak every last detail of the process to really speak to that product and, you know, lengthen this wash a little bit and add this rinse in here and clean it out that way and um, row a little harder, get into a better rhythm, how to just literally extract the most out of it, no pun intended, but you know, like anything, you know, you just practice makes perfect and they're just getting better and better every time. You should see how amped these guys get too, you know. <laughs> this team is just like, you know, they're like, yeah, we do that. Woo! And then they're pivoting onto gramming and then they're like, oh, hey, we're going to go like grab some hash. Like they just work so at a, such a fast pace and they all love what they do. This- when you get six or eight of them in there hand rowing and the and the music blaring and the pumps going and the air conditioner running and it's so loud you can't hardly hear yourself like said, think. Yeah. And there it's like a dance in there of cords and buckets and wet floors and ice bins and everything and they can move so quickly. They it's like they can have gotten to a point where they can feel what each other's doing and just run in this beautiful synergy. And they can do that and row till they're sweating in a 27-degree room and then go sit out in this nice secondary cold room and sit there and gram just beautiful coins of live rosin for 20 minutes while that hash is being collected by another team member and then hop back in there and blare the music and row till they sweat. And, you know, they get really, really amped. And, again, that all comes down to the love of the product and, and finding really amazing team members. Call them the penguins. <laughs> and they're like, we're not penguins. And But like one goes and the other follows and the other follows and they have their little like rain jackets on, you know, and they're like, like their rain boots and stuff. And they, because they're in their jackets, you know, and their sleeves are sometimes longer. It's pretty funny. They look like fucking penguins. And uh, 
Yeah, it cracks me up because, yeah, they're freezing cold all the time. And they come out to like 68 degrees and they're like, oh, God, it's hot. It's hot in here. Yeah, I experienced <laughs> that myself the other day. I think they were washing uh, a new variety for you guys, the grape cream cake. I yes. Guess, uh, from uh, Booney Acres, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. And so it was interesting to see the team and you guys and Boris, like he wasn't involved in the wash, but he was like antsy to see what they're what the pool would be, you know, in there. And uh, so that was kind of funny and and cool to see. Like you said, it it really is kind of like a symphony. They all move around. They all have their rhythm to them. They have like, uh, so, you know, I got to see it. But talk to us a little bit about how the space has developed that you guys wash it. Well, we're, I mean, from the first months of 2018 when we first started and we were shoved into that, tiny little unair conditioned corner of, of one building where all Papa and Barkley and Papa Select products were made till now where we've taken over. You mean over. the corner right next to where we were doing dry sift? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Every and like was floating everywhere. Every day you get in and ISO everything from top to bottom <laughs> and try to wash your bags in a sink where somebody else is trying to wash an oil laden bowl. And like, we'd go there and ISO down every surface and somebody would stand guard with their arms out blocking the sinks. And nobody else was allowed to touch the sinks till we had our bags washed. Um, and then it's summer. And having skylights <laughs> like <it's> shining <laughs> down on your hash collection bags. But we had fucking skylights. <laughs> and before we didn't have ice makers for a long time. So like, Every morning I get to go to Winco and like fill up like a Subaru with ice and like take out two shopping carts and like mob it down. I mean, that was my 7 a.m. every morning. Go buy 400 pounds of ice, load it in the back of my Subaru till, you know, the tail end was bumping and (laughs) get it back to the lab, unload it all by hand into, you know, a walk in freezer and then start the day washing. And at that time, you know, we've tried a few different processes from one machine we bought in the very beginning that wasn't it was a great machine and worked well but you couldn't scale it to trying to scale into a half a dozen of those little plastic bubble magic machines that (laughs) are hilarious but we just didn't have the space there you know you had to do what you had to do and eventually in just a few short months, we made the rounds through those and, and ended up back at, at the old school just hand washing in brute trash cans. And we did that for probably the next year and a half. And then when we built out the space we're in now, we do have a large cold room. We were using the brute trash can still for a long time. And then we found peer pressure bruteless washing vessels funny play on the brute trash cans we all washed in. So their bootless vessels were how we were able to really scale in size and quality, but I didn't have the ceiling height that I needed to, to put them up on a rack and have the gravity feed come down. And so because of that restriction, I had to find these massive metal lift tables that would hold 1,500 pounds and jack it up. So we'd have to lower it down <laughs> and everybody would stand there. Two people in each of the 65 gallon vessels would row for the eight, 10, 12, 15, whatever that row length was. And then jack that table up and get a set of trash cans beneath it and drain it through all the trash cans. Um, and in the last year, since we started to do yet another expansion and really 
demand, you know, to meet up with it. We just had to grow our production and we, you know, I really didn't want to lose the quality that we had become known for. And to find a machine that can scale with us and not really affect your end product, I just wasn't able to find it yet. So luckily, peer pressures always on the edge of innovation was able to come out with a pneumatic hash pump. And so I was able to scale up and get four 65-gallon brutless vessels. We run them through a hash pump and then into our collection vessels. And so we're still fully hand-washed. The team still splits it, one to two people for each vessel. And then the collection of it, you know, is is split. And we have two collectors going and two collection vessels at all times. And they pretty much go all day because the collection to do it properly and get it nice and clean and fully tracked takes longer than the actual washing in between. Right. So they get to a certain bag. They let the, you know, rolling team know who's either pressing or gramming or sifting at the time. They hop back in and start rowing. And by the time they're done with their row... The bags are just reset by the collector and they start all over again from square one. So that's how we've managed to keep that craft hand processed feel and still scale into washing 125 pounds of fresh frozen a day. Hand washing. Hand washing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that ain't no machine. Hand washing, you know, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Very, very proud of the people, you know, that we get to work with. It's so much volume. Yeah, it is. And talk to me a little bit about the challenges of collecting that fresh frozen, because I know you said earlier, you know, you were out in the freezing rain with these farmers. And one of the hardest things I hear from people working with fresh frozen that's located in such like a remote or difficult area is getting that, conserving it and bringing it back to the processing properly. So how do you do that? Oh, my Gosh. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and I, there's things that when you think about are just comical because you're like, oh, I can't believe we did that. So if you take like a seven cubic foot chest freezer and fill it with fresh frozen, give or take, it'll be like 13 to 15,000 grams, right? right? In one seven cubic foot chest freezer. And as Jillian's saying, one wash is 60,000 grams. So, you know, we're just a little bit of the way there with one chest freezer. I could fit four of those in an eight-foot 350 truck with an inverter setup, and that's one thing we've had to rig out is we have places, our, our transit vans are cold. We just got a reefer truck this last year. So up until that point, we've been beating the crap out of our Sprinter vans that um, we outfitted with condensers so they can be freezing, but it takes hours for them to get cold, and they're not efficient at holding temperatures. So that's a problem. And so then... For the trucks to off-road, because some of our best farms are off-road, on dirt, or like up switchbacks, up a mountain. I mean, you name it. (laughs) We've got it. Right. And so we had to figure out how do we put chest freezers, because I don't like to use dry ice. I try to avoid dry ice as much as possible. And and some people live and and die by it, but I have my own personal issues with it, you know, so I won't bore you there. But so, like, you know, we had to figure out. If we are to do one wash and get 60,000 grams, which is four or seven cubic foot chest freezers down off the hill, you know, it's sometimes for certain locations, 
We're using our inverters that are in our trucks and we're plugging it down and we're caravanning the fresh frozen down in those freezers down to places where we can store them into our vans or our Reaper truck now. The 16-foot Reaper truck has changed our lives in the sense of capacity because we could put 4,000 pounds in there at one go okay. and run that thing uh, at negative six. Like, we don't like any of our fresh frozen to ever go above eight degrees. You know, that's still kind of iffy, like definitely freezing and, and negatives all the time. So uh, you, before, like, we've had um, some better reinforced power surfaces here in Eureka. And while we were waiting for years on PG&E drops and whatnot, um, we've had some fires in California. I think a lot of people know where we were out of power one, one of those stints for four days here. And so round the clock emergency, what do you do when you have $2 million worth of fresh frozen and various reasons? Not to mention all the hash yes. that I was shitting a brick about. <laughs> so, I mean, right before Emerald Cup, like yeah, pretty sure panic we, attacks. Pretty sure we all poisoned ourselves with dry ice, like packing them into, you know, whatever freezers we could and making sure things are cold round the clock supervision and temp checks. I mean, it's, I have gray hairs over fresh frozen. I shit you not, and the stress of, like, you're driving in a van, and you have a whole load in the back, and you see your temperatures climbing and climbing and climbing on your in, in, in your van, and you don't know why. You know, one time we had a freezer break, and it was just, like, some coil in it. Instead of blowing cold air, it started blowing hot air. We lost $75,000 with the product within 20 minutes. It's Keeping things frozen is a serious problem. It is, and so also at scale, you know? So she for to-do... You know, multiple strains, that's hard, depending on your space constraints and whatnot. Like, Jill's really good at keeping her team nimble, but still, like, with testing costs and all the fees and everything that goes into it, like, packaging costs and fees and everything that goes into it, you have to release a certain size batch for it to make enough economic sense. And so getting, like, Hannah's a great example. Like, scale, 100-foot greenhouses. Eric's another, you know, example of that. It's like, okay, as long as you can build up your clones enough to plant that square footage, you've got it. But for people who have more challenging spaces, spaces like Dave from Sunrise Mountain, where it's like a specialty cottage and it's built into the hill and there's different levels of it, it's really hard for some people to scale. And that, in a sense, has been a challenge, too, because you'll have a farm that has 20 amazing flavors, but that's like a quarter of a wash for each one. Right. Like, how do you do that? You know, we have uh, another amazing farmer in Sonoma and he does all of these small batches of everything that's connoisseur hash plants. But again, it's not enough for a batch. So we miss out on a lot of those things. And that's a challenge too. So it's been scale. So like in January of this year, you know, I have maybe like four weeks in between the harvest season. Like I finish in, at the end of November, you know, if I'm lucky around then and I'm just crazy. And then we get right back into it a month later. Who's growing what? When are the first, you know, clones going into the ground? The first strains going into the ground? What's going to be the full terms? And we start mapping it out our sales, what we need for all of our products and what the farms are growing. And then we just start pushing that volume with people trying to get two, like at least 300 pounds of one strain. You know, we buy anywhere from that up to like 2000 pounds of one strain, just to hold it and process through it going into the next season, because you can find phenomenal things and then only have one wash. And it's the biggest heartbreak I think for all of us. It is. But when you find that quality and you find those quality farmers and it's like, okay, I know that this year I'm going to have one drop of this strain and that's it. And, you know, last year, particularly, we had a, a handful of those, maybe half a dozen or 10 of those. And it was like, okay, you know, and you just try to map out my production too. I have 
this many grams, that's this many washes and this many drops. And how do I spread it out and make it last until the next time this is harvested? I may have the ability to wash it once every month or maybe once every six months or maybe once a year and trying to have an understanding of that. And then, you know, not limiting ourselves because if we find that really amazing quality, we do want to release it. And then you have to answer all of those questions. You know, when is this coming back? Where can I find more? And it's heartbreaking to say not until next year. Yeah. But I'd rather have, you know, that one time. And and then again, we started tracking our drops too on our boxes to help those really diehard followers know like, okay, this is drop three of three. Like if you want it, get it, or it's not coming out again, or... You know, this is drop one of 10. You have plenty of time, you know, to pick that up and and not just the vintages and harvest and the differences that go into it, much like wine, but also trying to estimate how much product I can put out. And if you start watching those drop labels, you can see, okay, this is drop one of two. This is all, you know, this is half of whatever's ever going to hit the market from this vintage, this farmer, this genetic. Right. Well, and then... You can have something that's amazing. And I mean, we all, you know, like our personal choices. So a farm can, like, <laughs> Eric grew this amazing papaya. And he's like, I never want to grow papaya again. Like, I'm not growing papaya. Like, someone else can grow papaya. And Emerald Queen then grew it and did an amazing job with it. But there's some strains that are home runs in all of our eyes. And the farms are like, fuck that strain. And you're like, <laughs> okay, you know, what can I do with that? All right, you know, we'll figure it out. Good on you, you know, so you've got a little bit of that. And then, you know, for Emerald Cup, we did have some smaller batches like Jill was mentioning. And so we released some of those. I think we had 12 kombucha grams that we had to divide throughout the state, like six in the north part and six in the south. And so those six people who got those should feel fucking so blessed that they got them. But it kills me. Because I want to be able to wide release these things and get them out. So it is, it's a balancing act between genetics and planting and planning and all the things that can happen there. But then it's a whole other fun gram hunt and, and, you know, (laughs) being able to watch that and, and have people hit you up and be like, is this really all, all that I'm getting this year? They're like, it's, it's only April. What do you mean? It's it's dropped three or four. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Call them hash hoarders, like people who follow these things and then like, they probably, some of them won't even smoke it. They'll just put it in their freezer and hold on to it. Send you a picture. And they're like, see, I still have papaya 2019 from Hannah. Emerald Queen <laughs> killed it this year. And, you know, like I bought the 2020 and it's good and I'll smoke it. But I have these half a dozen in my freezer and, you know, I'll break one out for special occasion. Yeah, that is one of the interesting things about working with material that is dependent not only on the farmer, but the elements and yeah. the year. And this year there's fires or this year there's no fire yeah. or this year it rains more than the other it's you more know. like wine right. you know and their their vintages and their varietals and everything than any other product you've been able to compare it to mm-hmm. um, and like wine you know you'll have that expensive small release batches and and you'll have you know the five dollar box wine there's something for everybody and right so we were talking about the challenges of freezing earlier in a different context, you guys do release a decent amount of melt. It seems like, what's the decision behind that worse? Just to show that we're in for real, to be honest with you. I, I mean, this, and, and this is no disrespect to anyone who doesn't, but maybe just a, not, maybe a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that if you're not, you know, 
Well, one, we are lucky. We were blessed to, you know, have a distribution company to lean on with Pop and Barkley, and they, but they were not fully frozen, right? So we definitely had to work through converting that entire fleet uh, to frozen, and that's not an easy thing to do. But you know, I think that you can hide imperfections and problems and hash in the rosin, okay? And so I think it's incredibly important for us to release full melt and ice water hash to show the quality of what we're working with. Like all of our premium rosin comes from our 90 and 120 micron. Every time, no doubt. So if you're buying our hash, you understand that you, you're going to be getting that same micron in the premium rosin, right? Um, I think, you know, anyone that's making hash loves full melt. Like any hash maker, anybody that's, you know, anywhere close to a hash room or anywhere ancillary to it has an appreciation for full melt because that's literally the fruit of the farm's labors. That's literally what we worked all year to get. Squishing it even kind of feels like, oh, well, okay, that's a great product too. And it's I mean, it's just so completely unadulterated. Yeah, but this is just so completely unadulterated. And you don't have to squish it. I mean, I think that's what I love about hash, right? Is the fact that if done right, it is perfectly melts in the banger, in your puffco, what have you. And it it is the truest expression of that farmer's work. And as a hash company, I think you have to release the full melt. Now, the realities of the, of the market are a lot of consumers don't understand how to smoke it. Um, but I think our full melt is there to show you know, the hash consumers who we are. It's not necessarily to win new consumers. What I'm, the decision of putting it out there is really to speak to the traditional market consumer, to speak to the connoisseur, to show them that, hey, we're not just another rosin company, not just pulling out full spec, we're separating out the bags, we're actually all about the hash, and we understand that only 10% of the market wants to smoke it, right? 90% is going to be rosin. Um, Do you see that growing? No. I'm not going to lie. I actually don't. I, I think that um, not in the next five years. I think maybe Ice Water Hash makes a comeback in like in a five to 15 year timeline. That's my personal opinion. I think rosin's easier. I think batter's easier. And I think that if you look at BHO, what people are used to smoking, it's just an easier transition to, to those consistencies. Water uh, Hash tends to be intimidating for yeah. consumers. And people think, you know, and really the best way to have it is to have that high quality banger and that mm -hmm. nice rig. Um and the parchment and the, and the parchment. whole thing. Yeah. But it is, people just look at it and they're not quite sure what to do with it a lot of times. And, and we are really trying to get out that education and to get people used to it. And like I said, any time before I release full melt or even new rosin, it's always, you know, taking a little bit of that hash and setting it mm -hmm. aside. And when I take hash home, I let it sit on the table and grease out. And it just helps me to understand the cleanliness and the clarity of the product and the oil content and the stability. And you'll find really the best of the best looks like rosin once it's mm -hmm. fully greased out. Right. You may see the tiny little specks in it, but it is almost indiscernible, you know, certainly to somebody who's not used to looking at it um, to tell those differences. But it is everything that goes into creating it and keeping it into that perfect sandy texture as a manufacturer that's difficult, as a distributor that's difficult, as a retailer, and then again as a consumer. But, you know, also to let consumers understand that just because your hash greases out doesn't mean it's bad. that it's not still amazing. And I travel with my ice water hash, and I'll travel around with greased out hash and 
smoke it and handle it and use it just like a rosin. You know, when we just did this last event in Santa Rosa, what I found amazing about myself, and I love it when you're been in this industry and you think you know a lot, but you really don't. And um, I was letting our hash like go from like that perfect, like sandy, like white powder consistency and letting it grease out in the sun. And, you know, we're from Eureka. So hot days in Eureka, if we're lucky is a 68, if we're lucky in the summer, maybe a month out of the year. And the rest is just cold and like cloudy days. So even if I have stuff at room temperature, it's not hot here. Like none of our houses have air conditioning. So being out in 9900 degree weather and letting my hash grease out and just really seeing the clarity just so yeah like you're saying like rosin but then like scooping it up and the syrup that it's become of this sexy oil that won't even I, stay on the dab tool no, no when it was just, i mean it's, it's just it's just, just straight slipping oil. off yeah. yeah and i was just so enthralled by it and amazed and it was so cool because at this event we're able to safely give people dabs and try the you know the fruits of our labor and it was the coolest thing just to be in the sun and watch all the sun-grown trichromes react differently like in this state and they were all syrupy in a different way right. it was a trip and so freaking beautiful. And the science part of me is just like, oh, I want to see this like under a microscope or something. Mm-hmm. It was just really cool and a different way to connect to it. It's really beautiful. And it's a really simple thing to enjoy, you know. Um, and yeah, like. But having that plant material, it does burn a little differently. Uh, you hit the perfect. Look, that's why I think I don't I don't think it's going to grow. Like, because you have to hit it right. The right I refuse to believe that. <laughs> but I do think it's growing in popularity within the cannabis industry. So like. Holoflowers is a great example. We're serving out dams. It's mostly people in the industry, right? Uh, we are always like, we keep rosin for the dab station, but we all keep like some grams of water hash in the freezer in case someone asks, like, because we always want to be able to have that melt. If everyone's asking, like everyone in the industry is asking, if you offer them, they're like, yeah, I want to try the water hash. Let me see that. And then if they don't know what it is, it's a perfect moment to teach them, right? So I did get like, I think, but still, even out of like 200 people that I dabbed out or 300 people, I got one person and I hooked him, right? And, and he came back and kept buying water hash and like was, was in love with it. And I'm pretty sure he's probably smoking water hash well, right now. I got one but, too and it felt pretty good. But that's one. Like yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, 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 it's tough to get them over. But the rosin immediately, they're like, I've been smoking BHO. Rosin's the best. Solvent is the best. It's, I mean, I think that's why rosin has grown so much and it's going to continue. Well, just like the improper dab can turn so many people off to smoking oh, yeah. concentrate, something that's too hot. Mm-hmm. Something, you know, a hash can look beautiful and it can look pristine and it can burn differently. Mm -hmm. And because there is that little bit of plant material that encompasses the trichome head, it can have a little bit more of a charred flavor and it can, you know, that's why you can't just look at hash and, and tell if it's quality. You really need to smoke it and burn it and test it in that manner. And I do think there are a lot of people that, have had unpleasant water hash experiences. Mm-hmm. And in that manner, they'll be like, no, no, I'll, I'll stick with the rosin. It's, right. it's, you know, more reliable. But I do think just like, you know, too many hot dabs, too many people have had water hash that may look okay, but it doesn't burn properly and it doesn't have that right ratio of oil and that um, THC content to that plant material. And so I think, yeah, like in a friend, if if a friend's like hooking you up with a dab and it's your first time and they ruin your life over a really hot dab, 
you know, and you, that's not what you're expecting, it can ruin it, the experience for people. Like, I like people to be on board and, and enjoy this in a fun way and then choose your own adventure after that, you right. know? But one thing that I find interesting... Yeah, you don't do a shot of moonshine for your first drink. Uh, you know? <laughs> Speak for yourself, Jillian. I know. <laughs> but one thing I find really interesting about hash and, you know, the parallels of smoking joints or things like that is the ritual. I think, like, a lot of people enjoy rituals, and, um, you know, for people who roll joints, it's like grabbing the flour, using your fingers, breaking it up, grinding it up, and rolling a joint. I think that's something really beautiful about hash that people, you know, don't consider is taking out your water hash, putting it on some parchment, pressing a little flag, like all the little attention to details, you know, lining your banger and and waiting for the temperature to drop to take that perfect dab but there's a ritual there right and i think that's something that's really beautiful with it when you kind of geek out on hash is having your ritual and your connection in that space it's almost like a small little meditation every day that you're doing with yourself and i hope that you know maybe joint smokers or people who have those rituals will find that and see those parallels and be like oh this is cool you just have to come to my hash lounge <laughs> I have this dream of a hash lounge where you can serve those types of things. If somebody doesn't, doesn't have to worry of, about that, that whole process, somebody's doing it for oh, you, water hash is the best dabbing experience you'll ever have. Yeah. So if you can do that for someone, then maybe you can convert them. So well, in a hash lab is one thing, but then like we were talking, going down the rabbit hole, it's like, how cool is that? Like, you know, should I say this idea? I'm sure no, I'm don't like, say it to anybody. <laughs> don't say Shh. it. <laughs> We're going to leave that. <laughs> Never mind. But some cool fucking shit. Let's just say that. That's, um, you know, and maybe it's something that us here will get to work on together in the future. And, like, we can talk about that at a later date. But, yeah, we have some really cool ideas about around consumption and how to give people an amazing experience with hash. Cool. Well, I look forward to hearing that. But speaking of dabs, you guys up for another one before we end? Let's yes, smoke break. Right, cool. I'd like to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to continue to produce episodes, including episode 34 with Papa Select, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Mario, Ryan, and Jonah in Illinois, the homie Nate, aka Side of Mids, Turp Wizard in Michigan, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, MTS Farms, Meltwalkie Jeff, the homies pressing for show on the Big Island, Snarf Stash in Colorado, Pesci 44 in Connecticut, our good friend Jendo420, the homie Big C, Hash and Hedys in SoCal, Eric in Washington, CV the conventional dabber, the good homies from Mission Hill Melts, David at Rosin Evolution, the Hash Hive, Nick the Intern, the crew at Heritage Hash Mendocino, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, and my dude, the real cannabis, Chris. I appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. All right, Boris, tell me about how you got into cannabis oil. How I got into cannabis oil? Yes. Oh my God. Um, well, uh, I mean, cannabis in general, I'm, I'm always been a friend of the plant. I've been smoking since I was probably 18. That's kind of late for most people, right? Like most people start 15. earlier. 15. Yeah. I, I started at 18. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of, I was, I don't know. Uh, I had a lot of pressure in, in school to perform and like, I didn't, I knew that I had this feeling that if I, if I tried weed, I would like it. And that 
that would probably have some detrimental <laughs> consequences in my high school years. And so well, look where you are now. Yeah, look where I am now. <laughs> no, but I've always liked weed. But the first time I smoked weed really was with a friend after high school when I was 18. But the first time I enjoyed weed and got high and really just the plant was um, on the Red Sea, actually, in Israel. It was hash. It was hash that I first smoked. It was in a hookah. And my boy Rafi in Eilat, if you're ever in Eilat, Israel, you go to the Coral Beach and you go to the Bedouin tent that's set up there and you ask for Rafi. I don't think, I mean, he's gone sober since then, so he won't sell you any weed. But he'll send you, he'll make you some coffee or tea and give you a fucking tobacco hookah. But Rafi's a cool, cool cat. Um, That was the first time. And I, you know, I started smoking hash. And then when I came back to the U.S., I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep smoking hash because I learned how to smoke hash with the tobacco and everything. And then I came back here and nobody had fucking hash. And like everybody had just weed. And that was college. So I got to know weed. But I never really had a, like a relationship with the plant that was like medicinal in any way. Not that I was cognizant of um, until I developed psoriatic arthritis. So I have psoriasis of the skin. The arthritis sucks a lot. Uh, it hit me in like my toes, uh, my ankles, my lower back, my shoulders. Um, it's, it's pretty bad. It was debilitating actually. Like when I was 26, like really, really debilitating. Uh, and I found, you know, through a lot of different serendipitous activities, I found, uh, Canatonic, a two to one CBD to THC strain here in California. I started smoking that and it took my inflammation away in a day or two. That kind of sent me down the rabbit hole. Now that was right around 2011, 2012, Denver legalized in January of 2012 like two weeks later, I think I was in a car with my buddy driving over there. And for like three, four months, I was just buying my seven gram limit of CBD strains of flour at all these dispensaries until, you know, a few of the guys are nice enough. They noticed me and they're like, look, if you're buying this much CBD, you should maybe try like ingesting it or like eating it or tinctures or oils. And then that got me to a lot of the early uh, quote unquote hemp breeders, right? The people that are taking cannabis flour and breeding it down to 0.3% THC, but massive amounts of CBD and fully flowering it, sensimia. And um, getting hooked up with these guys, they got me the oil that I needed. And that's kind of what controlled my inflammation to this day. I mean, I take our capsules weekly that we make a pop on Barclay. I continue to support many people I supported then. But um, after I found it for myself, um, I started to be an activist. I started a company. Uh, supplying CBD oil to families with um, children who had epilepsy, actually. And we it was very, very sensitive, the, how, the quality of the oil that they were getting, right? No solvents, no pesticides, no heavy metals. Had to be triple tested and everything. And so I got a real good crash course on what it is to produce quality cannabis oil uh, uh, in this market. And so uh, that's kind of where I started. Uh, but all through that time, I was smoking hash. And I think at that time it was BHO coming back and like you could get some bubble hash in Denver. Wasn't that great. I really loved. Oh, I wish I could shout them out, but they got shut down. So it doesn't really matter. There was one spot that just made amazing fire BHO in, in Denver that I would always go back to. And it was the only time I could express like I could taste the strain in the concentrate. Right. And then it wasn't until a few years later when I got introduced to ice water hash that I understood that you could do this. Solomon's, right? right. And, and being introduced to raw, I was pressing raws. And I mean, I was doing that whole hair straightener thing back in Iowa in my room trying. I'm like, look to my wife, like, look what I can do with your hair straightener, dude. And she's like, dude, stop. <laughs> it's my fucking hair straightener. But it worked. And that was on. And then I got introduced to that ice water hash. And like just this, I've always been searching for that flavor of the cannabis to really be the same as the flavor of the extract. And the, the the truest place that that is true is ice water hash, and it was a it was an inevitable place for me to land on. 
uh, in my search because it's always like as I even made the bombs and the tinctures and our capsules and all those oils and the whole time in the background I'm using them but I'm having my stash of ice water hash or rosin or fucking BHO uh, that I was always smoking on and so to be able to actually fulfill that you know bringing my wellness actually to the market rather than just making all these other products that help you know as well was uh, was pretty awesome so that's my story if it's too long I'm sorry <laughs> no, you're good, man. Tiana, do you find it, or how do you find farmers understanding growing for hash versus growing for flour, even coming from the traditional market and having possibly cultivated for, you know, 20, 30 years? I think it's an incredible shift for some. You know, I mean, again, flour production is, can be, uh, different feeding regimens different um, cycles. There's different things you can spray as far as your pest management on the flower. Um, it's even down to harvesting, cutting it and hanging it, drying it. You know, there's a whole different process versus, yeah, when you're talking to farms and, and expressing, okay, well, if you have a strong IPM, like we want you to be as natural as possible, as regenerative as possible, where you're using like uh, KNF farming, Korea National Farming is a big part of having really, really good uh, trichome structure and um, living soils and those things. And again, like that's not just we're going to do this for our job. No, this is a lifestyle you live. Like you plan months ahead when you're doing Korean National Farming and you're taking elements from the area and natural things that are from your environment and breaking it down and using that as your sprays and your your food for your plants. You're not feeding you know, fertilizers with salts and things like that. There's so much, you know, and it's very specific to the different area and like what elements you have. So that it's a lifestyle. And I think people coming from the traditional market where they've grown for big plants, big production, maybe it's a shit ton of SFVOG, you know, just to sell that market. Or now it's just a bunch of purple because that's what's selling on the market. It's a very different mindset, you know, because I think people who grow for hash it's really hard for them to grow one strain. Right. It's really hard for them to grow 10 strains because they want all the different flavors of this hash, hash expression. You know, I think ABR is a really good example of that in Sonoma County. Sean's amazing. He's got a small uh, Hugel culture set up and is like really passionate about it. But man, he has so many strains. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, he may have a 10,000 gram batch or like a 15,000 gram batch of each strain because he can't make up his mind because there's so many good ones and he loves it so fucking much, you know? And, right. and I, I think it's just a very different mindset when it comes to cultivation. And I think that like, you know, flower farmers, if they have six strains, they're like, okay, I'm solid. You know, this is good. Like you can run this because you're considering also like if you're selling trim and batches, like all these other things flower size batch when you go to break it down and if you have your own brand and you're selling eights you know so it really just depends on everyone's setup but it's a different mindset for sure it's a um, a different dedication for sure and yeah I mean I don't know if you've ever grown sour diesel I've grown sour diesel I love that strain it makes amazing hash but sometimes man that plant is so annoying because it's so tall and it's like larvae that's kind of great when it comes down to hash plants, you know, right. GMO. I mean, some of these strains are crazy looking, you know, and they're perfect for hash because you can get in every single nook and cranny, you know, as a flower farmer, some of those strains 
are not desired because the density just isn't fully there and it's, it takes time to process. So I think once you can detach from those ideals and move into this, you know, um, it, it's, it's a win because you need to diversify your product here in California. You have to. I think it's really hard just to sell flour or just to do fresh frozen. I think it's important to do multiple methods so you have multiple revenue streams in case one is flooded or drying out or, you know, changing. Right. And, um, you know, I think it's also really hard to have agricultural practices that don't change and innovate, you know. And the more natural you are, the cheaper it is when you're growing in harmony with your, your soil and your plants and you're building that year after year. And the market is too competitive to have shitty weed. You mm-hmm. cannot have shitty weed. You have to have amazing cannabis. And the only way to do that is to be like full send, you know, full into the flames of it and figure out every which way that you can maximize your efficiency and uh, do more with less and still create that fire product. So, and we have farms doing that, but, you know, I've seen some that haven't changed and they're really suffering, you know, really suffering in their margins and and uh, just even be able to collab with people, partner with people, get their names out there. And wholesale has become such a crazy market that it can be really, really challenging. So, Yeah, and you hear, you know, the phrase fire in, fire out all the time. Jillian, how do you know something's fire once it's in the lab? Well, that all really, you know, as with anything, the first step is is on the farm and, and just looking at the quality of that plant and... Like Tian was saying, it is learning to look for a different set of values or a different set of markers for quality. And that was something I became aware of very quickly, even in 2005, 6, 7, where we were only washing trim and it was dried. And it was just really, at the time, learning to make something out of nothing, out of a product that had been a nuisance in the past for trying to find a way to properly dispose of it and then learning to dry it. But at the same time, I worked with a farmer who had his staple strains and but was always on the search, too, for new terpenes and new phenos. And so every year there would be 20, 30, 40 plants thrown in around the edges just to try new genetics he had received from a friend or had heard about or something he had bred himself. And when those didn't hit that mark for the quality of flour that he produced, I ended up being able to dry them and wash them. And a lot of those plants were really tall and larfy or airy and didn't have great bag appeal and would dry up to just really kind of sad-looking little buds. (laughs) But they were amazing for making hash with. And they dried quickly, and you, I didn't have to wash them very long in order for them to dump all of their resin. And I remember looking at it and, and realizing that distinction in the structure at that time, but still not being able to have enough of a market to devote any section of your grow to growing a plant like that that didn't appear any other way. But <clears throat> as far as determining quality now, it does start out at the farm and looking at the structure of the flower and of the trichome. But then, you know, you never really know with something that's going to respond well to the ice water hash process. You can have, you know, any 
look or any structure to a material that is resinous, has a high THC content, and you can blast it or run it through any other solvent type extraction, and you will pull out what is there. Ice water hash is not the same, and that's why we do so much test washing. The structure of the trichome itself and the stock it sits on also plays into it, not just the structure of the bud. And finding something that's going to respond to that process and give you the yields you need, even with as much experience and education as we have behind it, you don't know until you have it in the water with a paddle to it. And there, you can usually tell pretty quickly. Um, And that comes down to a lot of factors, but the biggest being the output and then the second most being the stability of the trichome. And you can tell that on the first wash. You can tell that as you're pulling your first sets of bags, whether the trichome heads even in a 20 or 30 degree room, you know, submerged in ice water, that agitation and the pumping and seeding of it can break those heads and cause them to start spilling out their oil and they grease out along the sides of the bags. And so those are always the first telltale indicators of a strain is, you know, the size of the pole and then the stability and the cleanliness of the heads. And you can have something that dumps, but the color's not quite there or the plant material is breaking down too far and getting caught in those same size micron heads or it's leaching a lot of chlorophyll. And to find, even with the experience we have, to find um, a strain, you know, I would say we probably every year wash five that don't work to the one that's amazing. And if it hits all of those markers, then there's still more for it to hit, to hit a production quality for us. And they may not all produce full melt quality ice water hash, and that's okay, but it still has to produce a quality live rosin. Right. And it can produce something that's beautiful and clear, but has such a mild profile that even though it hits our yield indicators and our stability indicators and and the visual ones, if it doesn't hit every one of them, it won't make it into our production. And we are blessed enough now to be able to keep our standards higher and higher every year. We've gotten pretty damn picky. Like the Miss USA. There were things we released the first year where, yeah, we had three farms and Why we <laughs> didn't have town in the beginning. And we, you know, you get something and it is still a business. You put in enough money to buying the input product. And no, it may not be the best thing out there, but you can't afford to not, you know, well, release it. And there weren't a lot of strains at that time, you know. Like, so we were happy with it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was the, a discount. The few that we didn't like, we were always released as discount strains. But, but when you're not a single source, you can't not release that. I mean, you, you or get well, put pull straight into our second press yeah. batches, which are half price. Yeah, yeah we don't um, have a, a BHO structure behind us, too. You know, for some people who it doesn't work for them, they'll just put it to their own BHO process. So we don't have that. But I mean, again, if we think where we were and we had maybe like six strains that we that were viable enough, and like our average yields were maybe around three percent, having some higher ones, you know, that was. We were like, great, we're at there, you know, like we don't bring anything in that doesn't hit above 4.5% in a bubble hash yield first and also having a pretty high press rate and then meeting all those other things like we've, we've scaled to the point where we can be picky 
and also where we're directing our targets towards strategic strains that are important gaps for in the market and things that and we really want to see. And our own quality standards and flavor. Yeah. And, you know, something that we were still looking for that melon turf. Yeah. Yeah. Still looking for that melon turf. Yeah. And like people say like Gax have like the melon turps. It's more like a high chew or like a, like a now and later or something like that. Like I want like a straight cantaloupe, honeydew, like, and maybe some gas behind that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's maybe one terp that I'm, I'm really missing. And it, to be honest, though, there's a few that I, I'm, I'm searching for that I, I want to see. And what I think it's cool is, too, in the different micron heads, the different oils hold different parts of the flavor profile. Yeah, the 90 so. can taste completely different than the 120. And that is why, you know, they will be released and marked separately. And finding something, you know, from all the different micron sizes and, and their little intricacies and how they press differently and why we have those premium products. It's like a corn of like like an ear of corn and like every kernel kind of having a different flavor profile in it. That's something that's super rad about trichomes, you know, like the just and the, the different sizes. development inside yeah. the different size gland heads and, and what that means to the overall end effect. So will you give us a kind of breakdown as to how the products are rated or kind of broke it down, however you guys look at that? Well, for the most part, we've always separated ours into we have a premium and a standard live rosin, live rosin batter, live rosin sauce, and then our ice water hashes are just broken by microns. But to me, it's not a tiered distinction between this strain, this genetic, is better than another. It's within this own plant and what we received. These are the premium microns this plant produced. And that is why hitting our quality standards is so significant for us because I can't just put it at a lower tier or lower price point and you know that you're getting, you know, maybe a less than 100 or less than a 10 rating on it. When we do come across those that we've gone down that road with and they don't hit our quality marks, they are released, you know, at a lower price point or put into another product. But when you look at our packaging and it says a premium live rosin, that means it came from the premium heads of that plant. And for your own taste and your own endocannabinoid system and your own preferences, you may like just a live rosin of one strain far better than you like a premium live rosin or even ice water hash level uh, material out of another strain. Right. It's it's what this plant has to offer and what's the best of it. It's not really pitting the plants and the strains against each other. And that's how ours is broken down so that you know, you know, and then it's, it's up to the consumer and they can decide what genetics and what strains they like. And occasionally we'll release the same strain from multiple farmers and then for them to be able to taste the differences in this farmer's grow versus this farmer's appellation. Um, it is all about the end consumer's experience. And that is why we have a premium and a standard of every, you know, different genetic that's put out by us. So we don't want to ruin hash for anybody. You know? I've always looked at it as trichomes. Trichomes are like, it's just like Frenchie always used to say, like, that is the fruit of the plant. The juiciest fruits are the biggest fruits. And I don't, I, I appreciate tiering systems for what they do in the consumer market because it gets consumers into rosin, which is incredibly important, right? But for us, we're, we're more about, hey, 
What's, let's stay true to that trichome. The largest fruits are what you're going to get if you pay the most money. It's just really simple for us that way. You should get the biggest ones. You should, like, as Dwight Troop would say, you should get the money beats. You know, you should get those ones <laughs> if you're paying that premium product <laughs> price. Like, um, I think the way you get lower pricing on products is second press is one, but then moving towards lower cost input product potentially, but then labeling it that way, saying, hey, this didn't come from a small farm at Humboldt. This came from a larger grow in Sonoma, for example, right? And then putting a different pricing level on that because it is a different product at that point. But we'll still, we'll still break it down by 90 and 120 micron and premium and standard in our own way because that's how we were taught what hash is. That 104 you, though. <laughs> yeah. 104 micron, though. Kind 104 of, is just that, that only sweet nanocrack spot. 104, baby. <laughs> is that sweet spot. Um, and, and so, yeah, you do find, uh, you know, that is how we break down our products and our variances. And then we only release them a few times a year, but we do have a second press product. And right. anything that really, truly doesn't hit our quality marks at all um, can be put out in that product. But for the most part, it is just a second press of that rosin sock. And in the strive for always producing the top quality product we can our presses are very short in time and they're very low in temperature and so I could get a higher yield out by doing bigger presses or ramping up the PSI bringing the temperature up a little bit but you tend to burn some of those more delicate terpenes and anything you know you put it on that heat for any more than a minute 45 and you can start to alter that live rosin and its end product so we just do as minimal as we can, and then we pull them and we fold them in half when we press them yet a second time. A lot of companies I've found it is their practice to do that, but to then combine it all into one final product. And there are not a lot of margins in the solventless game. All of the, you know, all of the hoops we've talked about jumping through, and most of it being the freezer capacity and the storage and the distribution and the input product and the scaling. There's not a lot of margins in the solventless extraction. And so, especially if they're a smaller company or if they're still struggling with that, they'll put it all into one product, consider it to just be a live rosin, and process all the micron heads together. It's very quick. It's very easy. And we tend to take our time, slow things down, do them in smaller batches, and part of that is keeping our second press rosin separated because it has gone through a second pressure set. It has gone through a second heating. And then in another aspect, it allows us to keep our top tier as clean as it can be, but also release a product that is affordable and accessible to a much larger market. It's a great introduction into solventless processes and products, and it runs at the same price as a BHO gram and it just gives people choices and you know none of us you know came from the silver none of us were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and we've all struggled to buy that quality cannabis that we want and you know we just want to try and offer that to as many people as we can yeah and Boris you talked to me about developing a vape pin you weren't necessarily super stoked on having to do it, but at the same time, you see it as an important part of pushing solventless. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the important part really is, you know, we're, we're, we have our backs up against the walls with solving this for a few different reasons. One, uh, I think with maybe in flour, this is still true too, to some extent, but the, the scale is just not there. In solving this, the traditional market still has a really, they compete well uh, in quality against us in a big way. And we are competing for those dollars, right? And so um, with with going out there in the market, you know, our pricing, even now we brought it down, it's like 65 to 70 pre-tax, right? And then California taxes can be up to 30% in some places um, on top of sales and state tax. And so, you know, we, you, you know, most, most things going out of dispensaries are in the 30 to $50. That's like the average price that people will pay for a product in a dispensary. Most PHO grams that are quality are anywhere from 40 to 50, right? Maybe a little bit more. Some rosin is now coming out, single source, full spec stuff, 45 to 55, right? We need to have an offering in that $45 level, right? And so our options are, you know, limiting a release of a few different strains at that level, which I think we're still going to do as well. Uh, but there's only a handful that we can get at this harvest season at the right product, at the right input product price to get out there at that price level. The vape pen seems like the easiest way to, to get to that price level. Now, like anything we do, we won't release anything that isn't absolute quality and that we love and that we would actually smoke, right? So we're going, going to be going through R&D over the next um, several months on that product. But I also think it's necessary. I mean, that 510 card is so accessible, right? I have seven pens in my, in, my, in my backpack right now, right? Like you have a pen lying around. And even if you don't, that's an easy thing to go and buy, right? And to get people into solvents and to have that conversation with them about, hey, if we make a fire solventless pen that's coming out of this and we do make a great sauce, hey, what is that? Oh, by the way, that doesn't have all the chemicals that, you know, the other pens you've been using have been processed with. Uh, you can have that conversation with that consumer that you haven't been having before. So for that reason, I think it's necessary. But for me, pens, I mean, solventless pens are certainly better than non, uh, but I don't smoke pens. So like for, for me to put out a product that I don't necessarily use isn't always as exciting. Uh, but, you know, uh, because even the best solventless pens, I mean, I have them in my bag. I just don't use them. I'm sorry. Maybe, and that's just my <laughs> just my truth. I don't I like to dab and I, and I like flour smoking. So I'm not saying anything bad, but I smoke flour and I smoke. You have a lot of access to hash. So, I have a lot of I access mean, to like, hash. So I mean, I can't we're in really. California yeah. And it's a lot easier. But the the convenience of it, the ability to travel with Certainly. it um, and also the discretion of it. That is still a very big that's point a thing out for there, a yeah. lot of people. That's something that I hate about cannabis. I hate being discreet about it, right? Because I've been discreet about it for so long. So it's something that I don't want to be But there are different levels, too. You know, maybe you have... You're definitely not discreet on planes. <laughs> Children. <laughs> you just... The dragon cloud coming through. And, like, Boris and I'll be sitting on, like, maybe opposite sides. And I look at him. And I'm just like, I know that was you. <laughs> I, have, I have just an aggressive hatred of, of prohibition. And an aggressive hatred of, of the laws against cannabis use and the hypocrisy around them and alcohol use in this country. And so if I can blow smoke into the face of that bullshit, I do. Uh, but it has definitely served me poorly <laughs> many times. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your direct-to-customer ideas. Direct-to-consumer is going to be awesome. Right now we're starting to figure out in the LA area, it's gonna be available in the next few weeks. So by, I mean, hopefully by the time this is up, it'll, it'll be up and running. 
in the LA area, every two weeks we'll be doing a delivery, deliveries on the weekends of either a five or an eight pack to consumers. So the, like I was saying, you know, at a dispensary, you go get a gram at 65 to 70 pre-tax. Some dispensaries could be 70 to 80 pre-tax, right? We don't control the market price at the dispensary. But Jillian now is going to start pulling off, you know, four grams of rosin and one gram of water hash or six grams of rosin and two grams of water hash. And you can pre-order them during the week and you'll get a delivery window for the weekend. We'll deliver it to your door frozen so you get that grainy water hash. We want to make sure there's a gra- there's water hash in every single package. And it will establish a direct line to people that want a large variety of terps or they want to be trying all of our flavors. You know, not all dispensaries pick up all our flavors. You don't always have the ability to buy that many at the dispensary because you're not going to get that kind of discount. But because we can pre-package them and because we can get them directly to you um, through a distribution system, that allows us uh, to give a cost savings. So on average, these units are going to be, you know, if you get the eight pack about 60 bucks post-tax, like out the door, 60 bucks a unit and 65 a unit, um, you know, 65 a gram. So, you know, 65 times five, obviously for the five pack. That's a phenomenal deal over the dispensary here in California, right? And it gives people access to a wide variety of our terpenes. You know, we already see 710 doing it. We saw Kalia doing it. We were, we were developing our own when, uh, when Kalia released theirs. I've been ordering from theirs. It's an excellent experience. Um, you know, anytime you can get hash at home, cold? Oh, come on, guys. That's the next generation. I mean, that's where it's at, right? Uh, you know, the way I want to buy hash, if I want to leave to buy hash, I think in the future the experience should be some kind of tasting, some kind of experience, some kind of place where you come and you can smell a bunch of different ones, you can taste a bunch of different ones, and then you can go back and for the next few months, order all the flavors that you tasted at that event, right? So I like that future of this, and I think that that will also bring in a lot of traditional market smokers, right? I think that at that point, we're hitting a price point that's equivalent to what's available on the traditional market at those levels, and then I hope that some of those fine folks will, will, will give us a shot and, and see how the legal market's doing as well. Yeah, Jillian, you told me in another conversation we had earlier this week that you look to appeal to a variety of people, including people who, you know, are hash smokers or kind of know more, but also people that don't really. So can you tell me about kind of the spectrum of people that you've seen that enjoy this hash or enjoy rosin? Well, and I think that is, you know, when people think of hash consumers, there's always those headies and there's that very out and apparent market of of smokers that I think we all know and love. Um, but I think people don't consider, you know, that they're everyday people that consume it from the soccer moms to the CEOs to the person bagging your groceries. And we're really trying to, one, create that elevated and clean experience that that speaks to all of those different people, that speaks to professionals, that speaks to family members and um, anybody across really the gamut of the public because it doesn't, it's not just for the 20 something year old guys playing video games and buying expensive glass pieces. I mean, we all know and love them and they are the cornerstone, but I think in the last few years, we've really paved the way and opened the door for cannabis to be accepted 
across a wide range of people. And, you know, from my, you know, family members who have children and have smoked it repeatedly, it doesn't make you a bad person. And we really just want to make it seem accessible to all of those people. And that makes it for just a clean product. And it's not, you know, I'm trying to say this in a way where I'm trying to talk about the positive and not say <laughs> the things we don't no, do that other that, companies I mean, let, let, do. I, I mean, even, <laughs> even in my perspective, like I've been a shitty stoner most of my life. I've grown weed. I've like trafficked weed. I love weed. Worked with some of the premier dispensaries in LA pushing top end flour for years. But smoking it has always been really hard on my lungs. I'm a CrossFitter. I'm a yoga person. And I fall into different categories of a consumer, I think. Yes, I wear Lululemon. I love them, you know. But um, I'm also into camo. So, you know, for me, doing dabs. Yeah, arm to the teeth, these two, just so you don't fuck with them. Gun enthusiast, responsibly. <laughs> you know, um, I'm a Glock girl. I like my Glocks. But, you know, all of those things. But being able to dab is, in a way, it is discreet. It's easy. It's I can smoke so many dabs and my lungs not hurt. But one joint, one spliff, anything like that, I'm dying and so it's just opened up a way to where i can get stoned in a very awesome way well it is a wellness product and it doesn't detract from the benefits you know with your sensitive lungs you're able to take one clean powerful hit that doesn't burn and doesn't make you cough so i think of soccer moms yeah i think of people who are in different categories like if they were shown this the right way and someone didn't fucking wreck their life over a hot dab gave them like a responsible dab where they can just start their own discovery i think it's a really great piece for people right because it's convenient it's tasty it's clean like it's all the boxes that you want as a consumer if you are caring about what you're eating or what you're ingesting so i think it's a perfect segment for that and i I look forward to seeing like a lot more people dabbing a lot more. People I think in 10 or 15 years, I think it's going to be the majority, the, the biggest way to consume cannabis. I think that flour will probably be out of the way. It'll be some kind of flour vaporization potentially. But I really think that things like puff goes and hopefully they continue to innovate. But these types of units, devices, yeah. devices are going to be the way people are going to and, consume cannabis. And I think you're right about the timeline just based on, you know, other states opening up and flour being the focus for a while. And there's going to be, again, all that noise and all that excitement. And for then, you know, how long it took solventless to grow in the California market, I really feel like that's going to be replicated across the United States. But imagine when we can bomb this stuff over to like the Middle East. Like when we can, you know. They're going to want that cured shit. They don't want that live no, rosin. No, no, we, whatever. We don't know. We don't fucking know. But I think that's the exciting thing. <laughs> but I do see think what these, people like, you yeah, know. Yeah. Like if we. And these elevated products and with the addition of devices that add for the discretion. No, I don't hide that I'm a cannabis user or that I have been for more than half my life. But, you know, and I do want to change that stigma behind it. But there are people who prefer discretion for their own needs and whether that is, you know, being around their children or being around their family members. And when you have a device like a Puffco or a pen and people are like, okay, I can have that in my home, you know, and not have have that stigma that's always come from, you know, so many years of keeping cannabis and cannabis users labeled negatively. And I do believe having nice, clean products 
and nice, clean manners of, of smoking them and the devices from pens, which thankfully the equipment is making leaps and bounds in their qualities because three years ago when we first discussed vape pens, it was no way. Why would we put a really high quality product into that piece of equipment, into that smoking device so it can just be ruined and charred and burned and um you know, I just think the leaps and bounds in, in that processing technology is really going to pave the way for opening this up to even more users and to take away that stigma and give people who need it or want it in their lives that discretion. And I think that's just a huge thing. We try to give everybody what they need across the board. Yeah. Well, cool. I appreciate you guys hanging out this long. I'll start kind of winding it down. Or as you mentioned the awards, I know you guys have won some Emerald Cup awards and I think you mentioned high times. What was the motivation to pursue competing in those? I think three of us are incredibly competitive. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Just but that's one reason, it's not the only reason. Me personally, I grew up idolizing high times, right? Like to win a high times cannabis cup and now now you know I've been lucky to win a few um that I know, I'm just proud of my. I mean, that's one of those things that I, I don't think anybody else is as proud as me as I am of myself for winning a cannabis cup. But the Emerald Cup, I mean, come on, man. The Emerald Cup's been around for 30 years, and I mean, these guys, I mean, more, right? 40 years. It's like been they, a they, that is the ultimate. Like that's where I would look. What should I be buying when I come it's to the California? You, well, who should I be following? What's the what's the best product? Like who's the that's what I mean. That's where I always looked, right? And that 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 was that was my like sort of north star, especially as someone who didn't grow up in California, right? Coming from the outside, so th- that was my motivation. I wanted to see, hey, I think we're doing something pretty special here. How does it stack up to the best, right? Like I remember the first year we were there, Frosty, you know, kicked our ass first and second place, and we tried their hash. And we're like, shit, that's good, right? Like, and I think competition forces you to become better. I think if you just think you have fire stuff and maybe you win some things, I think it's necessary to continue. Not maybe not every year, but compete every couple of years, man. Put your stuff in there and put yourself up to the scrutiny of anonymous judging. I also love how the Emerald Cup does judging. I mean, fully anonymous on the solvent list and the flower side, don't even get me started. But like 450 fucking samples last year, right? This year was like 90 some samples for solvent list. Uh, P.S. I want that job. Taylor and Tim love to get in there on the judging side, if you're listening. But uh, that is, you know, and 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 the people judging. I mean, the people judging hash and flour are the people that I respect yeah. more than anybody else in the industry. And so, you know, it's an honor to be reviewed by them. It's an honor to be chosen by them. I mean, it's just, you know, it's not about saying I'm the best because I think that anything is subjective. Even this year. You know, and the rosin, they said the top 10 were like interchangeable. I mean, they said that they came up and they said, we have to, the judges force us to say this, right? Um, and that's probably true. I tried a lot of the rosins on that list and they are all we argue for hours unbelievably good, right? And we're so blessed to live in this time. But I do want to know, are we a top 10 or are we not, right? Like, are we there or are we not? Because if we're not, that means we got more work to do. And if we are, that means we got work to do too. Yeah. But it, it gives you perspective for each year. It gives you something to, to work to and gives the whole team something to push for. 
And then you come back the next year and you go for it again. So well, in the first yeah. year too, having not done any marketing and having yeah. done no sales, it was a great yeah, way to it was just also like see marketing where sale, we yeah. where we fit, you know, before yeah. we even released into sale. And then that just lit a fire, I think, under right. all our of our asses. asses. Yeah. And I was like, oh, we can do this. Oh, we can well, yeah, do when this we better. got third that year, I think that yeah, that definitely the fire. But but I, like, it, it definitely was marketing too. We didn't have the money, so we're like, if we can win some awards, that will be our marketing, right? And and luckily, we did really well that first year in 2018, and then continued to do well. I mean, continued to yeah. do well. So, like, well, and yeah. we talk about like the customers a lot, like curating for them. Like for me, being in this community for so long, and a lot of the repeat offenders, like through Emerald Cup, through organizations, through farms, like you know, on the off market, like a lot of us have worked together years before. And so, for me, it's also that respect. That, like, we are all at this place, like, trying to do, you know, our best with a passion that we love. And to have something, yeah, Mm -hmm. and to have something that my peers who have been in this for years and who understand this plant at the level that we understand it. And they're like, wow, that was an amazing product. Good job, guys. Like, I couldn't be more prouder to, you know, stand, stand shoulder to shoulder with the people that we get to stand shoulder to shoulder with and put something out there that, you know expresses what we think is amazing and to have other people receive that like that to me is it's what keeps is you going on those rad. rainy days yeah. and those yeah. long when washes when you're looking and- at trichomes with a flashlight in the dark and in the smoke and you're like this is the one you know like- <laughs> some of this probably we also want to maybe prove ourselves a little bit too right yeah. so many good names out there and everything we just want to say hey you know we're, we're doing something too we want to you know pay attention to us a little bit right and um it's got to be a little element of that too. That's more competitive. Yeah, there's there's multiple shades to yeah. it for sure, but I stand by it. I think this has been one of the greatest callings in my life with Same some here. of the best people that I've ever had the chance of meeting. So, you know, hands down, no regrets. You know, full send. Mm-hmm. Like this has been fucking awesome. Yeah, since you brought it up, tell us a little bit about finding that strawberry jelly. yeah so booney acres phenomenal farm phenomenal people and they have that sasquatch vibe out there where it's just like the magic gnomes and the magic of sasquatch and like the mountains of trinity county and they have like 600 something acres out there it's like a big plot of land under the stars it's fucking magical and then you have symbiotic genetics breeders and they work with certain people pure melt is one of those individuals up here and pure melt gifted a mimosa fino to Boone Acres, you know, and I, I've been talking to these guys a little bit here, a little bit there, and they're very much of like just putting their head down and doing the work and staying in their lane. You know, they don't like to work with a lot of people. They're very cautious who they bring into their circle and they have an amazing, you know, community because they've been very selective. So when we finally got the chance, like it just came together at that late point in the season, it's almost impossible one to get the budget approved because everything's been solidified for a while. And if you add another, you know, $20,000 in that, they're like, where, what the fuck? No, you know, it's harvest season. No. And so, and then it's the sample testing and everything that goes into it before you can do a large production batch. So for all of those things to come together when our schedule's already blasted, I'm pulling 16 hour days, you know, my whole team is just struggling because of it. Um, We connected and it was like late after like she had pulled a Jill had pulled like a 12 hour, 13 hour shift in the lab. And I was like, I got to go out to this farm. She's like, I'll go with you. Met these, um, met Andrew, who's one of the three owners. 
it was dark out. And that's the first time meeting. And, you know, you're off-roading up a freaking mountain, dirt roading. For an hour like, after yeah. being on the highway for an hour. Yeah, like you're <laughs> out there. And you're in the dark and you're just going through these, like, locked gates and trippy places to meet people you, you don't know. And you never really know what you're walking up to. Like, that could always be a cool thing or it could be a really not cool fucking thing. <laughs> you know, you just never know. But the vibe felt right. And going out there meeting Andrew, the vibe felt right. And just seeing their plants under the dark like that. And like, we knew, like they they have some special things out there. We have some very new strains that we're releasing this year from them that, um, you know, you won't be able to find anywhere else. And years of hard work, but yeah, in the dark, in With the smoke. As a yeah, flashlight. And looking at trichomes and we're like, this is the one. I didn't, couldn't get harvesters out there. I couldn't do anything. So I pulled like our science guy, Wesley, I pulled him in. I pulled people from my team. I pulled as many people I could and be like, hey guys, tomorrow we're going trimming chest freezers out there doing the whole thing and yeah that strawberry jelly and that kombucha um you know place at the emerald cup strawberry jelly being first for hash kombucha being second and then the strawberry jelly third place for rosin and it was so freaking worth it and it was by the skin of our teeth and it was just for the love of it because we were dead tired but we couldn't say no to the opportunity and everything just fell into place so perfectly to we're supposed to go out to Booney how many times? Like four times? Yeah, this season. And they were heavily impacted by the fires this season. You know, they had a lot of losses and stuff. But at the end of the day, their main homestead survived the fires and their garden survived. So we have some amazing flavors coming from them that got huge doses of CO2 from the fires. And the plants look so beautiful. Um, so, you know, in balance and everything. But I, I think it was pretty phenomenal, you know, how that all transpired. And those guys went from like doing flour and some fresh frozen to they're like, everything's frozen. And I mean, full, full send, full heart into it, like going for it, you know, and it's a really magical place. I would really like to bring people out there camping so they could see their spot. It's pretty epic. Yeah. We were supposed to hit them up, but like we said, the fires. Yeah. So maybe on skates this year. So it's a reason to come back, Shiragam. Yeah. Hey, I'm always down to come to NorCal, man. Coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Boris, a lot of this that we've talked about this week, outside of appealing to the masses, has been appealing to people coming from the traditional market, still using the traditional market. What do you say to people coming from that sector that view a company like Papa Select as like corporate hash? <laughs> Okay, first of all, I don't think the concept of corporate hash exists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. But I also think we should, one, I, I don't think we should be scared of the idea. In the legal market, the way you produce in a legal market is under, as a corporation. All the brands that any of us buy are incorporated. I choose where to spend my dollars in every market outside of cannabis, right? And so my, me personally, I only buy certain type, clothes from certain brands that I, I like and I like what they do. I only buy food from certain places, local farms that I like what they do. And so I think it's not fair in any industry just label it as corporate. I think you have to ask why people are doing what they're doing and what they're doing um, with their power and their quote-unquote corporation. Um, I don't think that people should necessarily just come and flock to buy Papa Select. I think there's a lot of great brands in the legal market. I think that people should not shy away from buying legal hash or, or white market hash just because it's quote-unquote corporate hash. I'm sorry. That, first of all, you're hurting yourself. 
more than anyone else because you're Straight because up. you're not you're not getting to try all all the new flavors and you're not getting to make an opinion about things that are, if you say you're a connoisseur come out and try everything right i am in the white market i buy i have half an ounce from wook sauce in the freezer right now right like so this is not a thing that i don't want you to to, to buy from the traditional market but i do think that to me it's myopic to say that oh you can't buy from a legal maker because it's corporate hash i don't think that exists I think anybody in hash is there because they fucking love trichomes. Uh, and anyone, at least anyone that's releasing full melt, to my fir- former point, anyone that's releasing full melt is certainly there for the love of hash. And by the way, go out there and try that $40 rosin so you understand how lucky you are to understand the difference between that and the $70 stuff that you can buy or the traditional market stuff that you can buy that is fire, right? Um, help educate people on what that quality is. Right. We need these traditional hash smokers in the legal market, educating even legal consumers. Right. Um, I I mean, that's just my my plea to them. I would also say, come out, man. There's there's some great, 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 great Terps um, in in the white market. And and there's some great direct to consumer options from us, from other brands that that are out there now. And you can buy the amounts that you want to buy at the prices that you're buying them. So I don't think there's a good excuse not to at least try it. Well, and even the hash makers with their knowledge. Yeah. You know, I would love to see them be able to collaborate more. If they can't get licensed, work with people who can. And maybe it's just a limited release or something because. We'd love to work with them. Yeah, we we would totally come to us and let's work together because you know what? There are so many talents and I I follow some of the, you know, Alice and Wooksaucer, you know, one group. I mean, American River Extracts, like E.T. Farms. There's all these people. Simply Adam. Simply Adam has some of the best hash out there, you know, so. There's so many people I'd love to work with, and, and, and that's where I think it's cool. Get creative with cannabis. Figure a way forward and figure a way to have that conversation and put it out there. Because, yeah, I, I don't think it's not just ours. Like, I think if you're into hash, you should be trying everybody's. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's really hard to be a corporate hash maker. You don't just <laughs> you don't just roll in and be like, I'm gonna set up a hash. Lab. I'm a suit that makes hash. You know, you don't just come from the pharmaceutical industry and then you know blow out a hash lab and have any luck in the solventless market. Like you have to have a love and an education, and you have to live with the plant every day, and especially with the hand processing and and the trials and tribulations of of solventless processing and what does and doesn't respond to it. Like somebody, you know, I mean, I'm sure somebody can, but you can't really just come in and dump money at it. You have to be living it. And yeah, you can come in and, you know, buy acres and acres and and get somebody to grow on it for you or simply, you know, read about it and and follow some regimens and grow cannabis. But to follow that into and think that, you know, some suits are out there making hash and, and don't have a love or an understanding of it, you know, just because somebody's doing it in a legal platform, I guarantee you, no one I've come across anyway has ever not done it in a backyard, in a garage, under the redwoods, you know, we all started someplace and humble and yeah, <laughs> don't limit yourself, you know, be out there and realize that, it's actually far harder to create a product like this in the legal market with the hoops you have to jump through, with the compliance, with the mm-hmm. tracking, with having five different auditing agencies that can come knocking at your door any day mm-hmm. and have to prove something where they're where you're compliant to prove it, not only through all steps of your processing, but 
all the way back to the seed that the farmer grew. Like I challenge anybody who thinks that anything in the legal market of cannabis is easier in the legal market other than going to the store and buying it. Yeah, everything that goes into making that hash is, is, is there's a lot to it. And it's one exciting thing about the legal market is, look, <clears throat> we're going to need scaled hash. Like, don't, don't we want that? Don't we want a lot of hash to be available for us around there with a lot of variety eventually? That comes by getting to 60,000 gram washes, by getting to 200,000 gram washes and scaling that while still scaling quality. That is still an engineering problem that needs to be solved and has to continue to be solved. And we need traditional hash makers to solve it. We need the legal hash makers to solve it. But I do think that the legal hash makers are in a position of scale to, to get there faster, right? Because and they have to. We have to have so many more difficulties yep. in their road. Yep. So, yeah, here's a shout out to, you know, uh, the traditional market and the rec market and everything in between that, you yep. know. I... I would love to hear from more hash makers and be like, hey, I've got this strain. I want to collab. How do we do it? Let's figure out a way forward. Because yeah, we'll make that happen. Yeah. There's so many names out there that I would love to help push forward. And there's so many strains too. Like I am one person. My team is lean and mean. We are lean and mean, the three of us here. But let's, let's collaborate because I, I think the sky's the limit and there is enough room for everybody. And there's so many talented people out there that we would love to work with. Boris, where do you see Solventless going in the next five years? Uh, more into non-smoking products. So you're going to see a lot more Solventless and like gummies and edibles and everything like that. But I see it taking, I see Solventless concentrates um, being at least 50% of the concentrates market, if not eventually over the next 10 years surpassing the traditional types of uh, extraction as economies of scale develop. But in the next five years, it will definitely be half the concentrates market out here in California and in any established state. And I think that the preferred method of extraction in any new states is going to start to be. So we're hearing from all the states how they all want solvents. Did you hear that? I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Solventless, woo. Yeah. That's me in the background. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Jillian, you're in the lab almost every day now. Do you foresee yourself continuing in that role or do you see possibly like some transition and development within that role? Um, <laughs> that question has been plaguing me for a while now. And, you know, I do know that in order for us to grow, you know, we always need to be pushing that envelope and developing new products and, um, working with the greater team and, and really around the education and how to bring away all of those factors we talked about of, you know, an intimidating product. And, and I know in order to help push, you know, what I see is the next step, not only for our company, but also just for the industry as a whole, I feel like I'm going to have to step away from the lab somewhat as of right now I spend all day every day in the lab and that's not to say that I'm in there washing and pressing um, but that is where I keep my office set up and where I take my meetings and you know even on the upper level meetings they're used to seeing people go back and forth behind me with totes or me stopping to check rosin but it is also bittersweet I'm happy that we've gotten to this place and that 
I've been able to build this team and this brand to a point of success where we do need to be looking on to the next things and, and how to continue that, that drive forward. Right. But the thought of stepping away from the daily goings on with, with hash is, is a little sad. Um, and I do love being able to work with the team and, and, look at a process and say, okay, you know, this is very reminiscent of a strain we washed, you know, two and a half years ago before, you know, I had the team that I have now and, you know, we should really alter this in our processing and, you know, you guys need to leave this a little more full of water and run this for a little shorter time or pump this out that much sooner or really looking at the heads and deciding what's going to give off the best terpenes and what needs to go into every product or the temperatures for the rosin. And um, as much as I hate to step aside from having my hands on the hash every day, I do feel that that is going to be an inevitable transition in order for us to improve the brand and improve really the industry and, and the education and knowledge behind it and looking into product development and how to grow our brand outside of California and what those implications are. And so I do believe, you know, I will keep my home base inside that lab as much as possible. But even this year, I've been traveling and doing events and going to farms more than ever um, because I have such a rock-solid team and an amazing production manager, Lauren, that she keeps that ship running for me. But... I still feel like my home base in this company will always be at that lab. And, you know, whether that's sitting quietly in the corner, taking my meetings and doing my emails and putting out, you know, writing things for emails and educational pieces and going to San Francisco and doing bud tender trainings. Um, it is going to have to take me out of the lab, you know, more than I've ever been able to, but it's a good change. And it just speaks volumes to my team and their knowledge and how much they've worked over the last year to get to that point where they can look at all of the factors and analyze that and make the right decisions and pivot on a dime. Because it is so often, I don't know how many times a week I come in and I'm like, well, okay, stop, everybody stop, we're doing this different now. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Tiana, if you had to give one recommendation to a small farmer trying to figure out a way to make it in under Prop 64, what would it be? Diversify. You know, and that could be your strains. That could be the way that, you know, if you're selling wholesale flour, if you're doing packaged flour, or if you're doing fresh frozen, you know, and, and education on your strains. Don't just keep growing the same thing because it's worked. And a lot of farms like to do their own breeding and stuff like that, which is great. But don't bank your whole crop on a strain you don't have a lot of data on. You know, it's this market is competitive and we have to make smart choices. You know, and if those are hard choices for you to make, reach out to someone like me or reach out to someone who understands those things to help you because it's free knowledge that like, you know, you can look at where the market trends are going and be like, oh, you know, let's not grow anymore ice cream cake. Let's just not do it. You know, same with like overproduction and you want things that are unique, but that are going to be viable and that are going to give you the volume. And if you want to do fresh roasts and that are going to yield, and if you're going to do BHO that are good for that process and 
everything in between. So those are a lot of variables, but it's being strategic in what you place at your farm. And, and diversifying. reliable partners. Yeah, reliable partners. And, and if you're going to do it all yourself, there's some people that do it all themselves, but you need a concrete plan at this point. When you're not making 2 to 3x off of your product anymore and COGS really matter, know how much it costs you to create a dry pound of flour. Know oh, yeah. how much that costs you. Some people don't. Figure it yeah. out. Your labor, your overhead costs, your land payment, your Track taxes, your everything. Fucking everything. And see how much that pound costs. Because if you are not covering those costs, something has to change. Because you are not going to be able to afford to stay in business. Right. And more now than ever, those margins matter so desperately. So so find a way. Cool. Good suggestions. Boris' favorite traditional market hash brand. Oh, come on. I got to go with my favorites. Wook sauce. Wook sauce. <laughs> But only since Alice has been involved. No, I'm fucking with, I'm fucking with you, Flynn. You're cool. No, um, Alice makes I, a good hash, though. Yeah, so no, I don't know. Wook sauce is my favorite. Their cookies and cream like made me fall in love with hash all over again a couple years ago. And their, um, oh man, what's the the dosi papaya they have? That that's just like fucking killer. So uh, yeah, I just got the Kushmas. They all everything he makes is just fucking gold. So I love that stuff. Cool, Jillian, favorite. Recreational market brand outside of Papa Select. Ooh, you had to ask her that one. I love it. (laughs) That's a tough one. Um, It is, and and I've frequently been asked, like, what is our favorite one that I've processed? And that's almost as hard. That's not what we asked. I know. I know. I say this question. How do you pick a favorite? Um, I would probably have to say Kalia. You know, just for quality and consistency, um, you know, and especially they have their hands on genetics that um, are, are very different than ours. And so when I do go in and, and get from these markets, it is, you know, I, I get to look at it from the lens of a consumer right. who I can look at, at a strain list of our and understand all of our genetics and what's behind it and what it's going to give me. But when I look at you know, some of these other hash makers, I may not know all of theirs. Unfortunately, I'm not the genetic encyclopedia that Tiana is. And <laughs> that, you know, I don't get to, you know, sit and spend my hours researching that and learning that. And so if I am flying blind and I'm not um, able to pick out based on, you know, a great genetic or something that I'm really searching out, depending on where I'm going with that gram and what I want it for, whether that's vacation or, you know, or, or weekend with family, <laughs> you know, you may, sometimes you need something to knock you on your ass or you need something to wake you up. Um, but with Kalia, I know that, you know, it's just a really, really good quality levels across the board, even if I'm not familiar with the strain. Cool. Tiana, one of each. Oh. Favorite. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I would have to say that... And um, there's there's a strain that I got at an Emerald Cup at an event, you know, a couple of years ago. And I can't remember the strain name exactly, but it was like kind of tasted like now and laters. And that was some good hash. And that was just a private person who made it on their own. And so no brand, yeah. just a private person. And as sad as it is, I don't even really remember their name. That was just like a gift in passing that I, I really loved. You know, um, give us an answer that people would know. 
Well, I, I'm giving an honest answer, you know, and I've had, I've had some, you know, like, um, I, you know, I, I had some things from like heads that roll are really good. I've had a gram from American river extracts that was pretty fucking good, you know, and I, I was, would love to try some dabs from Minnesota dabs if I'm ever in that capacity. Those plum strains are insane. And like, you know, just there's some people across the United States that I would love to visit. So on that side, on the traditional side, and and Simply Adam had his, the Mandarin from Simply Adam is some of my favorite uh, hash real. I've ever had in my life, like some of my favorite. So I guess that one takes the cake for me. <laughs> yeah, but as far as like the rec market goes, oh yeah, God. you know, I think Kalia is doing a phenomenal job. And, you know, and I, 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 I definitely don't mind standing shoulder to shoulder with them, you know, at award ceremony, ceremonies. I think they're doing a great job. So I'd say that they're definitely my favorite on the rec. Cool. And it's so hard. There's so many. It's, it's so like hard. Frosty. I love Frosty. Yeah, I mean, I got to shout out Frosty and Rosin yeah. Tag. And like, I mean. There's Those so many good Great ones. guys. Like, great companies, great people, great great humans. Yeah, Frosty. Have hash. Just stuff. Just yeah. amazing. I would love to see some hash. Got some great hash. from Hash yeah. and Flowers at the show that was Yeah, I didn't great. try. I haven't tried Hash and Flowers yet, but all I've heard is amazing things about that's, them as well. That's where I think hash. my decision, decision comes from. Like, I have... I've had hash from Kalia and I like their hash, you know, and a lot of these other companies, like they make amazing rosin and, and batters, but I haven't had hash from that's them. True. And right. that's what I want to taste more of and see. Like, I want that full melt too. Their sour diesel hash was on point, you know, and you so, don't find that in the market very often. So I didn't try it, unfortunately. a lot of respect for them for that. Yeah, I haven't tried Kalia yet, so I'll have to check it out. Ask right. for their hat. <laughs> Get delivery, baby. Yeah, sign up. <laughs> Final question for all of you. If you could hear someone on the podcast who has not been on the podcast, who would it be? Does it have to be specific to hash? Like, is it just anyone? No, not necessarily. I mean, no. I think, look, honestly, I think that you should speak with Guy. That's at some what point. I was going to say. Guy Rocour is like. I can listen to him talk Yeah, all I can day listen to him talk cannabis. for days, bro. Like, if you want to talk to someone about cannabis, hash, trap, legal, whatever, Guy Rocour is, is a guy to talk to. Um, yeah, that's the only one that's coming to my mind right now. Cool. Yeah, Guy was definitely the first that came to my mind. He's just this very energetic like you feel the passion oozing out of Guy with every word and no matter whether I've heard him give the same speech you know at different events you know multiple times it's exciting every time and he draws you in every time and and just a wealth of knowledge and experience from the very bad to the very good and everything in between. I saw Guy <laughs> speak at NCIA my, like my first year that I met him um, and I was <laughs> He, he's the only man I've ever seen get a fucking standing ovation after he introduced himself. <laughs> like straight up, the whole room stood up and erupted when after Guy, after the three minute self introduction. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why he's the only man coming podcast. into my mind yeah. at, by, by any stretch that's of the tough imagination. Question, yeah, you know, and I. I want to just, I, you know, and there's some names that I really respect. And like, we've heard, you know, from some of those people that have been on your podcast, but I, I would love some more people to reach out who 
maybe have experiences that we haven't been able to see and be like, let's talk about it. This is something I'm working on, you know, because I feel like we have this think tank of what's on the rec market and like products that we need or products that we want to make and things that we're excited about. But I feel like we're just scratching the surface and there's just so many other cool things that obviously we haven't thought of everything. Like someone's thought of something else cool. And I would like to hear some of more of the backyard or home grows or home little hash labs speak about some of the things they're working on and enlighten me, like give me other things to think about and like blow my mind. Because I'm always on the quest for something new. And, and that's what I want to see is like something Innovation new. hour or the trials yeah. and tribulations because the crazy things that we've all done, you know. Like shark tank making, for like weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even the worst things like, you know, making hash out in the hills and having to drive an hour to buy block ice and chipping it by hand and hooking up a drill to a generator because you're harvesting at the same time and you're using literally a paint mixer to mix up the hash, you know, and and that's the things that I had to come up with on the hill, but I love to hear how other people have gotten around these really difficult things and those small growers that don't have, that are running on solar or running a generator and have been through, you know, some of the best of those years on the hills when everybody would get together and have a beard and a, or a few beers at the end of harvest and start to tell like their best escape stories from the feds or from <laughs> camp and like the booby trap escape routes they had, you know, dug up through old, old blogging slides and things like that, where you could like release a boulder and it would roll down and block the road behind them. And <laughs> that's what I love for the, the old day stories. And you, you know, it work. you know what I would like to hear more though, and it's not specifically in cannabis, but like I would love to hear more someone who's on like the corporate freeze drying fruit train, like someone who does mass freeze drying strawberries or mass like freeze dried bananas. Like I would love to know more about that process and like what it takes and like what's the SOPs behind that and kind of see that because. Mm. I was Schoenbeck knows a lot about this. Oh, well, you know, and I, I feel <laughs> like size, I, I, dryers. I, I would just really like to see that on some level in a, in a industrial and commercial setting for like someone who, I mean, you know, like Whole Foods sells like those freeze dried strawberries, like thousands of dollars for or whatever. I want to know the companies who do that, because I think there's a real market for freeze dried cannabis, like flour in a very different way where it's preserved just kind of like the hash but it's expensive and the barriers to entry are crazy. And I, I just want to know more about that. It'd be really rad. And I also would like to know more, um, maybe someone in another ancillary business of freezer capacity on the agric- agricultural scale, like distribution, that kind of stuff. Because as this opens up state to state, people are going to have to build out distribution routes that are for freezer transports and freezer distros of like fresh frozen to other states where they can't grow or they don't have good farmland. So if you want brands to be able to manufacture, like where's the weed going to come from? So these are things that I think would be really interesting puzzles to look into the future in and to get some really cool perspectives, maybe some for people who aren't in our industries, but are building it out in similar capacities. Right. Yeah. No, all very cool and interesting ideas and perspectives. So I appreciate it. I also think you should go back and do a, a full episode with Mac from South Face Farms. Oh, yeah, he's... You should just get him down. 31 again. flavors ain't shit. Pastor <laughs> <laughs> Robbins? Yeah, got shout out shit to Mac. <laughs> yeah. Cool guy, South Face Farms and Uncle Mac's brand. Quite a character. Yeah. So, yeah, again, I 
I'm super appreciative of you guys taking the time, not only to hang out today, but this week. Anything else you guys want to add before we sign off? No, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you. Yeah. Mad respect. We have some good, a good cultural it. icon around hash and cannabis <laughs> that we can listen yeah. to now and, and, and hear from people. Hear from people we just IG stalk all the time. Like, all yeah. these people are just people I IG stalked until I can hear them. Oh, <laughs> well, we're creepers, show. man. We're like, yeah, we're <laughs> tell us your story. I think there, yeah, there's lots of, lots of creepers. Yeah. But no, we really appreciate your time and your passion for this. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you about everything. So thank you for just taking time and seeing a little slice of our world. Yeah, of course. Yeah, likewise. And again, if you want to follow Boris, Tiana, and Jillian, uh, you can do that. So at at Papa Select on Instagram. And I appreciate you guys listening this long. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.